Um, let's see. Sorry, guys. I'm going to put it in. All right. Can you hear me? Can everybody hear me? Okay, good. Yes, I hear you. Sorry, it's going to be loud for a second. I'm trying to find a uh, quiet space here. Sorry. Um, have fun, guys. Sorry. All right. Let's see. Hopefully, this will be a quiet space. Give me one moment, guys, and we can get started. All right. Today is Sunday, March 28th. This is Dave Horowitz and How to Win in Court Without a Liar. Welcome, everybody. So today I was going to talk about, um, and, and don't mind me today, I'm shooting from the hip. I didn't have time to prepare a, a full study. So I was going to talk about uh, freely, we have received, freely give, and that God's economy is based in, and freedom is based in grace and forgiveness. So that's the topic for tonight. Okay, thank you. Sorry, guys. All right. So when I say, you know, uh, when I say that, uh, for, you know, that uh, freedom is found in grace and forgiveness, um, it's something that's very much lacking in the courts. And uh, I've got to make a <laughs> make a statement. I, I actually lost my first case, uh, found out this morning, that uh, my daughter's case, my daughter-in-law's uh, workers' comp case, uh, she was ruled against. And the reason I believe is because she is pro se or was in, you know, had a, uh, her, she didn't have a lawyer that uh, because of that, she can't appeal. However, if she had won her case, the defense could appeal the decision. And that's why the only reason why I believe that, um, that uh, she lost was because she can't appeal the decision. And uh, this case was such a mess. They made their the judge made his ruling on two doctor statements that were um, obviously skewed toward the defense, but based on about thirty minutes each of diagnosing her. <laughs> One of them never even saw her personally, and only uh, and only um, saw her over a video screen. So very hard to get a diagnosis of anything with no testing and, you know, no physical um, uh, observation. So anyway, I lost my first case. <laughs> Not feeling good about it, but that's okay. I think that uh, equity will prevail where the law can't find a remedy. So we're going to look into that as we move forward. But um, and again, it, it, it's part of this, uh, you know, part of the discussion uh, about this topic tonight is that uh, 
you know, Bible says we're under grace. We're not under the law, okay? We've been redeemed from the law of sin and death uh, or from the law, period, okay? Uh, redemption was through love and forgiveness, and that's where we get freedom from. Uh, under the law, there is no freedom. There's always that debt, which we see in all of this world system of, of, of courts and, and uh, you know, politicians playing God. Uh, acting as if they are God over the rest of us. They want to use the law to uh, enslave rather than for justice or, you know, for setting those captives free. You know, if, if they can hold something over you, then you're not free. You're, you'll never be free when they can hold, um, you know, when they can hold something over you, a debt that you owe or that they claim that you are. And because of that, there's no freedom within the, in the system or from the system um, utilizing the system itself. You have, to, you have to separate from that to find grace. And it's not that you can't find it. You have to, you have to be able to claim that. You cannot claim that under the law. You, you only find that in the courts through equity. Equity will suffer no wrong without a, you know, without a remedy, where the law, you know, provides no remedies at all. Um, and that's why I find that after, you know, 30-plus years of studying the law and the opinions of all these, you know, pontificating uh, politicians and people claiming to be judges and lawmakers, um, there's, there's no remedy there because if they provided a remedy they would have to relinquish their, their claim of a debt owed to them. Oh, my goodness. Sorry. Kids are a little rambunctious today. Uh, for those of you don't know, that don't know, I am uh, not in Montana right now. I am in Las Vegas. <laughs> so my peaceful woods have turned into uh, <laughs> the, the urban jungle here. <laughs> But uh, no, I'm, in, I'm enjoying my visit. But um, yeah, I mean, when when you go into the courts here and you um, you're you're being brought in under these statutes, under these codes, under these acts, under you know um, all of these things that are designed to create a debt, and the debt is what keeps you enslaved you know the borrower is slave to the lender and as long as you're in debt they can they can make a claim over you it's uh, you know and it's a claim to uh be able to make up the rules for how you do something just like uh you know when you go and you um indenture yourself to a job okay through contract and uh you put your energy in and they owe you a debt um that debt is created by, you know, by your energy and them, you know, for that was put out for your employer, okay, and they're supposed to pay that debt. Uh, interestingly enough, when they pay you with Federal Reserve notes, they're actually not paying you, okay? They're giving you a promissory note. It's like, well, you know, and, and this is how it is. They're going to say that, Oh yeah, we owe you a debt, and you know, but 
we don't have it to pay it, so we're going to give you, uh, you know, the government owes us, so now the government owes you, and you have evidence of that by the Federal Reserve notes that you put in your pocket. Okay, those are not money. Gold and silver is money uh, as per their own rules. Constitution says there will be no money but gold and silver coin, and so we're not, nobody's ever paying the debt. Um, since 1933, when they, when they uh, took all the gold and silver out of the economy, they made it impossible to pay debts within the system. So they, you know, all that they can do now is through fiat of IOU. And unfortunately, those IOUs will never get paid. Um, at best, they can be discharged or forgiven, okay, uh, or offset, which is also forgiveness. Um, that system that was supposed to be set up, HJR 192, uh, Public Law 7310, those were set up because of this bankrupt system. It's, uh, it's an accounting. That's all it ever was, was an accounting since 1933. So, you know, it's basically it says, okay, you owe this one this much, this one owes you that much, and it's just that accounting. Uh, anybody who knows accounting knows that at the end of the month, you're supposed to balance the books and everything. And when you balance them, it's supposed to be a zero balance. You ask, uh, your, your assets column and your liabilities column are supposed to balance out to zero. And the government operates without a balanced budget, haven't balanced a budget in, boy, I, I would say at least 15 years, if not more. Uh, if they ever did, if they ever did, they can't balance the budget without paying the debt. So that's why um, discharge and offset were, were, were established there. They can't pay the debts because they're bankrupt. They don't have anything of value. Um, at least that's what they say. But because they're refusing to, um, <laughs> excuse me, because they refuse to, acknowledge that offset and discharge um, and keep trying to hide that supposed equitable remedy that was placed into the, into the books, um, there is this humongous national debt. Um, without, forgive, you know, without forgiveness of sins, there is no redemption, there is no peace, there is no freedom. And you won't get that until, uh, and, until you see forgiveness or discharge or offset, right? Because there's always going to be a balance. Um, I spent a little time today looking at uh, biblical economy and looking back into the Bible as to, you know, what were the remedies? Now, everybody, you know, the, the land was all, you know, everything is God's and the full, you know, the world is, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So everything is God's. We, we have it for a time. We're stewards of it. We're trustees of the things that are entrusted to us, including the planets. <laughs> and um, in ancient biblical uh, economy, especially in the land of, of Israel, or Canaan at the time, there was 
a seven-year jubilee and then a 50-year jubilee where the land, if the, uh, the family that was on the land, if they had to give it up because they went into debt or, you know, um, they would get their land back in their lifetime so that they weren't, uh, whole, you know, that they didn't have, that they weren't without a home of their own, free and clear to start all over, a fresh start. That's what Jubilee was all about, forgiveness of debts, um, a renewing, <laughs> okay, um, a fresh start, a new chapter, um, kind of like where I'm at now. Uh, it's a new chapter. <laughs> um, not sure what's going to happen next, but it's a new chapter. Um, Old things have passed away. All things become new. That's jubilee. That is forgiveness. That is redemption. That is freedom. Uh, and it comes through through grace and forgiveness. So uh, when, the, when the word says that we are not under uh, law but under grace, okay, we're that's under forgiveness. We're not held accountable for our debts any longer. They're forgiven. They're forgotten. Um, and I was looking at some of the uh, some different articles on um, forgiveness of debt and uh, how the biblical um, concept of jubilee would absolutely help the world's economy, and it wouldn't hurt it at all because all these debts are fictional anyway. They're all fictional anyway. If um, If you were to borrow something from me and I uh, lend it to you, uh, where it says, you know, you, you give without the expectation of getting it back, okay? Um, they can say, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to return it to you on Friday, okay? And if they come back and, they, you know, they, uh, it comes back on Friday and it's broken, doesn't work. Sorry, I broke it. Um, there's, there's two options, okay? I can... I can hold it as a debt over their head until they repay it, okay? And then, and then you get all the feelings and all the, you know, the bad feelings that go along with the negative things that go along with, the, with that debt, okay? And if you, you know, the intention, uh, you know, if, if you give without the intention of, you know, uh, getting anything back or anything in return, um, you're not let down, Okay? Uh, you're free to move on. Things, you know, um, and, and when we forgive that debt, we can let it go. It doesn't. It doesn't hang over our head or theirs. Okay, it it it, it allows freedom to happen naturally. It really, really allows freedom to happen naturally without the um, constant. You owe me this. You owe me this. You owe me this. And that's what the world does all the time. That's what the system does. In, perpetu in perpetuity, it does it. Uh, there is no forgiveness of debts. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've seen a couple of articles lately there. You know, they're talking about forgiving school loans. Okay. Um, and when they talk about forgiveness, they're usually talking about debt forgiveness within, within the world system. Uh, a lot of these economists that have been looking 
um, at the Bible as, as you know, being valid op- uh, a valid way to free, really free people from these debt slavery situations um, by offering a jubilee, a debt forgiveness and mass. And uh, <laughs> I do not believe in Q and all that other garbage, but a lot of people are talking about a great reset and um, along the lines of a jubilee. And again, being that it's the world making this offer, I, uh, you know, the system making this offer, they don't do anything for nothing except take what they haven't worked for. Okay? So I, I look at it a little bit leery um, because they'll say, you know, it's kind of like, you know, oh, they'll incentivize like with the, with the um, like what they do with the, uh, you know, what they're going to do with this uh, vaccine, right? Well, if you, you know, you can fly if you take the vaccine or you can go work if you take the vaccine. And I've been seeing in, in you know, in Israel, especially right now, is uh, you're not allowed to go out. You're not allowed to go into stores if you don't take this thing and have a passport. And it's coming here, too. It's already starting here. Um, uh, when, when I was up in Montana, I was going into Missoula. And when you can't even go in without wearing a mask to a store, the Walmart or, you know, the grocery store. And um, they just make it very inconvenient and, um, you know, almost impossible to get the things that you need without a hassle, without you being guilted or without them um, looking at you like you're, you know, um, out, to, out to harm them because you won't wear a mask or you won't get the vaccine. And they're going to start discriminating and, and, uh, and making it hard for people to work. And then again, you know, when, when people don't work, they look to the government for welfare. Uh, these, these stimulus packages and checks of, you know, uh, parent government uh, running to the rescue of a situation that they caused in the first place. So they, 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 uh, they introduce the problem and then, you know, come back and say, oh, well, you know, we're the solution to that problem. But if, you know, if they weren't there, none of the problems would have existed in the first place. But going back to forgiveness uh, of uh, debt, from what I'm seeing here, they're looking to go digital currency, wipe out all the debts would be a real good way for them to say, well, listen, you know, you have this debt and, uh, you know, if you just come over to this system over here, this digital system will wipe it all out. So, again, it's not real forgiveness. It's a trade-off. The world's not going to offer forgiveness. They're going to offer a trade-off. Okay? Um, There is no remedy there. And bringing this back into the courts, um, this is why when I go into these courts, I really like to stick with equity. It is an You can find equity in these courts, okay, but you've got to be the one to bring it. They're not going to let you know that it's there uh, because that's, there is an actual remedy within equity. Equity will suffer, uh, and, you know, anyone who suffers an injury in equity will have it, their remedy. 
So you know, it's a maximum of maximum of equity that uh, there will you know there's a remedy for every wrong, okay, or every right violated. There is a remedy. You don't find that in the law, and the equity is higher than the law. So when when you go into your court case and and you're getting run over, um, it's time to bring in equity, okay. And what I mean by that is. Um, you're appealing to a higher rule. It, it's, it's fairness. It's just. Um, and I'm not talking about the world's equity um, because, again, they try to, um, you know, the courts, the system itself um, will look at equity and uh, pervert it. It's not the same. It's really not fair. This is why... You know, in equity, you can you can move it into uh, arbitration, private arbitration, um, handle it between the parties. You know, if we can get equity between parties, two parties, two legitimate real parties, um, then I'll just take my daughter-in-law's workers' comp case. They were uh, in in Nebraska. Their statutes and codes say that. If you're harmed or if you're hurt on the job, that the workers' compensation statutes are the only remedy that you have within the court. Okay? And that may be true, you know, as, as far as what they're, you know, what they say. Okay? Um, but there, if you cannot get a remedy within the statutes and codes, that's where equity starts. Okay. Once you bring that in, the law is uh, sub, um, you know, I would say inferior to equity. The law doesn't care about being fair or just. Okay. Statutes and codes are all commercial. That's why you see all, you know, all crimes are commercial crimes. If you're dealing in commerce, if you're dealing economically and and every crime has an economic value to it uh, that they're trying to excise from from you uh, the one that violated you know Caesar's rule is decree their fiat their fraud um, their addition to true law okay love your neighbor that's the law <laughs> okay and, and 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 it really does make it simple but that is where equity is found. Equity is found in, in, in love. It's, it's, it's found in fairness. You have to go in with clean hands. You cannot, <clears throat> equity will not suffer a wrong without a remedy. That makes sense. So while, you know, when you are going into uh, these courts, these statutory courts, the family courts or these um, uh, traffic courts, all, all of the system's courts, um, <laughs> they say is law, which they'll call statutes law, codes they'll call law. They are not real law. That's not law, okay? Uh, they're opinions. Law is not opinion. Law is not arbitrary, okay? And, you know, thou shalt not kill. You know, murder is wrong. We know that, okay? Um, 
so how is that a commercial crime? Well, again, they're going to, they, they even say in their rules that all crimes are commercial. They all have a price tag. They're all brought with a bill. You did this, okay, now you owe us. And the victim never gets their, you know, will never get their remedy either. So the murdered, you know, if someone murders, the family that, that suffers the loss, um, you know, they, they don't get justice. They don't get equity. They don't get reimbursed. The state takes and, and they take and they charge back through the, you know, the bonding process and all these different things. And then they get tax money to pay for, you know, uh, the, um, the, you know, the, the offender, the one who committed the crime, they make a lot of money every single year, every single day that they're in a cage. Okay. But the family that's suffering, you know, the kids without a father or a mother, you know, they, they're not getting anything and they call it justice. You know, oh, well, they're in jail. That's not justice. They're not getting any remedy. Who's going to replace, you know, the loss? That's where equity comes in. Okay? You won't find a remedy in the system. And this is what I've been looking at for, you know, uh, all day today as far as, you know, God's economy. It says, freely you have given, you know, freely you have received, freely give. And um, it's not that there wasn't money and in, in, in uh, these ancient economies, I mean, there was uh, the shekel that we talked. They talked about, uh, you know, different forms of money, um, you know, even in, you know, with the temple, going all the way back to, you know, Solomon at the time. There was things that were made of gold, silver, copper um, that were used in lieu of, um, exchange, in other words, um, direct trade, okay? So if you couldn't bring, you know, your bushels of grain and your, you know, tenth of, of all of your increase um, to Jerusalem, to the temple each year, you could sell those things and bring the money and then purchase them back when you got there because it would have been too hard to carry all of those things uh, for their journey. So, that, you know, all of those things were allowed um, as part of the economy. So it was used. Money was used, um, you know, throughout biblical times. But, again, when, <laughs> when you look at what they're calling money these days, it's not money. There's no value. Constitution even says, right, only gold and silver coin will be money. You cannot pay these debts. So if there's nothing to pay the debts with, you're in a perpetual state of bondage. There is no freedom. There has to be a forgiveness. There has to be grace in order to have to find that freedom. Hope this is making sense. <laughs> but uh, when you, you know, we, we have to ask for that forgiveness. If you, you know, if, if you don't ask, you, you never know. Um, I kind of got, uh, got rid of about $87,000 worth of uh, school loans doing that very thing. 
was asking, you know, uh, for forgiveness. I, I basically explained the, uh, the the trust, the system, to the collection agency, and uh, they knew that they could not get money. They could not get anything from from the dead entity, so they just forgave it, all of it, eighty-seven thousand gone. Not on my credit reports, not anywhere. All gone. And uh, and this was all done over the phone in a, in a you know five minute conversation. It was just literally saying, hey, you know what? If you you know if you've got proof that this estate you know uh, borrowed money from you, then bring it forward. You know, show <laughs> you know show the consideration that you've given for this supposed debt. And there was none. They created it out of thin air. Very similar, you know, if um, if you're going to, you know, if you sell a service or a product and then you, and you offer your customers financing, okay, you're creating a debt, you know, again, an obligation, right? I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today type thing. And, uh, you know, that promise to pay for the burger, what do you have to pay for? You know, I can come back on Tuesday with another burger and say, here, you know, uh, I borrowed a burger. Here is a burger. That's called in kind. Okay. This is the whole, pro. you know, this is part of uh, the A for V process, the acceptance for value redemption process that they talk about for discharge and forgiveness of debts is acceptance for value. What value did they lend? If they didn't lend gold and silver, what did they lend you? A promise to pay, a debt. Okay, so in kind, if they're, if you say, oh, okay, uh, you gave me credit, uh, nothing of value, Again, because it's not money, it's not gold and silver. They gave you nothing of value. You're going to return to them that same, that same exact in kind nothing. <laughs> I received nothing from you, therefore I am returning your nothing. And uh, you know we all know what uh, you know. Nothing times nothing is nothing. Nothing times one is nothing. Nothing times twenty is nothing. Okay, zero times anything is still zero. So if they gave you nothing in the first place, if they gave you nothing of value in the first place, then you have nothing to return to them. It's an empty debt. It's all created in fraud. It's all created in, uh, in uh, it's fiat, fiat by decree. It's because we said so. <laughs> and uh, we've, had, we've had other talks on this subject. Uh, in the past, but um, getting back to God's economy is being, you know, freely you have received, freely give. Um, you know, I, I, I hear a lot of folks going, well, you know, this guy's selling this process for, you know, $2,000. That guy's selling this process for, you know, thousands of dollars. And, you know, the information's out there and it's free. And it is. It is. Uh, are they selling their energy? Are they selling their, you know. Um, 
does the process itself have value to begin with? Um, when you look at the A for V process, you return what is what is given. You return what's given. So if it, if you lent me an ounce of gold, I return to you an ounce of gold. If you return to me a debt, then I have to return that debt back to you. And this is the discharge process that 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 should be uh, recognized and and uh, afforded to everybody within this system. But they keep they keep hiding it. They keep moving the answer. Um, I was just talking to somebody recently, and uh, now it's over in a totally different department than where it was prior. Um, and I was also looking into the post postmaster um, that uh, the postmaster general is responsible for debts of the United States. And then all debts, again, if everything that we're using is this fiat currency that is uh, IOU from the government, it's all debts of the go U.S. government. It's all debts of the United States government. So oh, you really have a mortgage, you find a note. I promise they know, right? But that was a point because it was over two years. So, Adam, hold on a second. You're a little blurry. It's uh, it's not coming through. What did you say? Sorry. Was that you, Frank? Hello? I didn't hear what you were saying. <laughs> Something to do with the promissory note. That's all I heard. I don't know if we lost them or what. But yes, uh, again, it's all about promissory notes when you're dealing in when you're dealing with the government and this monetary system or lack thereof uh this this pro, um bankrupt system they they have nothing of value supposedly okay um which is very hard to understand especially when you see the things that have value like the land grab that's gone on through this pandemic uh and continues to go on um I saw an article today that they are going to be bringing back the Postal Service Bank. And it was a, you know, since I believe 1910, uh, the post office is, you know, was a bank, is a bank. Still there. They still do money orders. Um, but when you go and you look at, and I believe it's uh uh, it's either U.S. Code 38 or 39, where they talk about the postmaster and the, excuse me, the postmaster is responsible for uh, the debts of the United States. It's kind of going back, and I actually spoke to Linda a little bit about this today, um, and that's the direction that she was going in as well, um, being able to go in utilize the postmaster, um, the county 
um, the county attorney as the supply chain, uh, you know, in, in charge of the, we'll call it the temple for, you know, where, where, where the um, provision comes from, the storehouses, okay, and that comes from what she was saying, through the uh, county attorney is in, in, in charge of that or the governor, uh, you know, the state attorney, I'm sorry, um, in charge of, of meeting out that provision. But, again, the, the, the postmaster had that direct um, connection with the secretary of the treasury, who is the receiver for the national bankruptcy that has been reinstated every year, uh, I believe every seven years, and they redo the bankruptcy rather than offering a jubilee, a forgiveness of debt so that they can continue extending it out and never doing the discharge. Anybody that's ever gone through a bankruptcy, usually they rush you through, right? They, they, they want you to get all your debts together, bring them to the receiver for the bankruptcy, which is usually, usually your lawyer that the judge will appoint as the uh, receiver for that bankruptcy. And you, you go and you get all your debts together, all the bills, and you bring them to them. And they discharge them out and close the bankruptcy so that you cannot continue to um, discharge and offset your debts in perpetuity. However, HJR 192 and, and Public Law 7310 were designed to do exactly that from the time that they took the gold and, and all the value, uh, all of the money out of play. All you had left was the opportunity to discharge your debts in bankruptcy or offset them each month back to zero for recurring debts. That's how they operate in bankruptcy. There's no reason to do a personal bankruptcy. There really is no reason to do a personal bankruptcy while the nation is in bankruptcy itself. They're in a perpetual state of, uh, and, and it's not reorganization. It's not reorganization like they would do a Chapter 11, you know, or Chapter 7, or Chapter 13, or whatever. Um, it's not reorganization, okay, because they're not paying any of their debts, okay? It's straight discharge, chapter 13. It's a, it's a discharge of the debts. It's an offsetting of any recurring debts. And they do it because they cannot pay their bills. Um, the, the, the government can't pay all the debts that they owe. So they continue to operate in this fiat fraudulent uh, currency that, um, you know, it allows them to control the economy. Uh, and not so much the economy, because there is no economy. When there is no money, there is no economy. It's just a bookkeeping. It's who owes who what. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I guess uh, in, in, when you're dealing in fiat, you know, if you look at uh, um, Venezuela, you know, when, about a year ago when all their, when their uh, economy crashed and all the money was thrown out into the streets, it wasn't worth anything. 
whoever's held, you know, whoever was holding the most, uh, you know, had the biggest debt owed by the government to them. When you have a, a promise, you know, an FRN in your hand, that is a debt owed to you by the government. You're holding their promissory note. Okay. Now, when you go into, you know, when you go into court facing a, a, a creditor that says they have a promissory note from you, okay, promissory notes are the currency of bankruptcy. That's all you have because you have no value. Everything of value is gone. If you had value, you could pay some. You could, you know, you could pay it out. You could pay off the debt. But without it, you know, without anything of value, you can't pay a debt. You can just, you know, promise to pay when you get something of value. Well, if you're holding an FRN in your pocket, and uh, you know, the only thing that, that that's uh, the only value that's in it is your trust that it'll be worth something. You know, that somebody else will take that debt from you in exchange for something of value. It's really a horrible system, and it never allows you to step away under grace or forgiveness if they continue to keep these things open. And it's being discussed now, even, you know, a lot of uh, economic scholars are talking about going back to the biblical, um, the biblical, um, concept of jubilee which is a forgiveness of debts every seven years on everything even you know even if you were to indenture yourself to someone to pay off a debt okay which was when they talk in the bible about indentured servitude okay it was for the time that it took to pay off a debt so if i if if I borrowed something from you and I didn't have the money to pay it off, okay, uh, I can I can offer to work off the debt, use my energy to repay the debt, okay, and that was the um, concept of indentured servitude. I'll borrow, you know, you sell me this car and I'll work it off, okay, until the debt is paid, and then I'm free of the debt. Okay, the borrower is slave to the lender. We're not supposed to go into that, but their entire system is based on this. It's all commercial. It's all based in debt. How can you have commerce? How can you buy something without any money, without anything of value? A promissory note. That's the system that we're working in. It's all about promissory notes. So when you get, um, when when somebody says, well, I'm going to pay you your salary and Federal Reserve notes, okay, they're saying that, well, the government owes them this debt, and uh, they're going to transfer that to you. Now the government owes you the debt. That makes sense. So I'm going to open it up to to some questions. Um, You know, I'd like to talk some more on this topic, and I know that there's a lot of people out there that have questions about – discharge, offset, you know, promissory notes, um, you know, forgiveness of debts, how to get out of debt, how to gain some, you know, some semblance of freedom from debt. Um, And we were talking, you know, about uh, law and equity. And again, 
the equitable position would be forgive the debt, okay, where the law says throw you in a cage or indenture yourself into servitude until the debt is paid. This is why the government is uh, perpetually in, in, in servitude, right? They're public servants serving you. Well, and it's because they owe a debt. The government owes a debt to you. That's where the service part of it comes from. It's, it's servitude. And they don't like to serve, obviously, which is why they commercialized everything rather than keeping with their equitable oaths of office and operation. All, that, all the facts went out the window when they took away the money, when they went from operating under their constitution uh, and their oaths and in trust to commerce operating out of a corporate scheme, uh, you know, to indenture as many as they can. That's how, you know, that's how the uh, master became the slave. They were created to serve us, and instead they became, you know, they became the master. Otherwise, you know, again, how do they make up the rules for us to live by? If they work for us, how do they make up the rules for us rather than the other way around? Okay, and that's where it gets lost from uh, into that com commercial side of the court, that commercial side of government. Um, there is no remedy there because it's impossible to pay a debt with a debt. That's why there's no remedy. And they won't allow you to discharge unless you know what you're doing. And you really have to know what you're doing uh, to get in there and call them on their fraud. Because if it's okay for them to discharge and, you know, by decree, again, their, their fiat is by decree. When I look on the newspaper, you know, I, I'm flipping through on the, uh, you know, when I open up Google and it says, Biden is talking about forgiving uh, student loan debts, which is awful nice of him, you know. But, uh, again, it's just by him going, snap of the fingers, I forgive you your school loan debts. And that's really all, the, all that's going on. He's not forgiving anything because nothing existed in the first place. The debts were theirs. Debts are the government's. The, if, if they were just operating in the discharge and offset of their own bankruptcy to begin with, it wouldn't even be fraud. But when they, when they keep you from being able to get that remedy, it absolutely is fraud because the banks are doing it. The government is doing it, but they won't allow you to do it. You have to be held accountable, but they don't. And again, that's a, there, there's an unequitable situation being created there, and it cannot find a remedy in the, you know, under statute, under code. You're not going to find that remedy. Equity is the only place you will find a remedy in their system and they're afraid of it because they know they have to take responsibility for their own actions that's why they want you to take you know and put uh 
liability insurance on your vehicle or on your property because they know that if there isn't, you're, you're just a beneficiary in their system, okay? You have no fiduciary or legal responsibility. They do. But they can put it in the rules that you have to pay for the insurance. You're, 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 not, uh, you're not insuring you. You're insuring them. That's why they put the rule in there is to, is to protect themselves and be held harmless from having to, to actually operate in equity and take responsibility, their, their fiduciary responsibility and their legal responsibility uh, to you, the beneficiary of their trust, of this trust that is the public trust. And it's corrupted. So I was reading uh, today about, uh, you know, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, you know, where moth and rust doesn't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. And I was thinking about it for a while, and, and, and it was, uh, <laughs> you know, when you think about moths and, and, and rust, you know, you, you, you think about corruption. You think about something that's just eating away at, your asset or whatever it is that, you know, is, is, is being um, corrupted and taken away, <clears throat> excuse me, the value taken away from things. And it, and it, and it really is um, that public trust. That's what it does. It's why you can't get a remedy there. You, you, you know, there is no remedy in fiction. <laughs> and, and it's the fiction side of the court. When you go in there in the statutory side of the court, you're dealing in fiction. It's why you go into a lot of these courts, especially family court, and you go in there and they go, oh, well, you know, you don't have any constitutional rights in this venue. Because if, they, if you did, they would have to be acting equitably under their oath, not, you know, running you over like a kangaroo court that they are. If, if they were acting equitably or if they were acting under their oath, they would be, you know, they would have the fiduciary responsibility and the legal responsibility or lawful responsibility um, to cure and provide remedy. But where remedy, you know, where, where the law can't provide remedy, equity can. So a lot of the times when you go into these courts and, and you feel like you got run over and beat up, even though you know you've got a, a valid claim, okay, and it's because you allow them to operate under law and not equity. You allow them to make, uh, you know, hold themselves harmless, uh, you know, for the wrongs that they're allowing to happen, Um Going back to my daughter-in-law's case, I mean, they turned around and I mean, she's been getting treated nonstop since the accident up to this current day. And the medical bills alone are about a quarter of a million dollars a year. Um, you know, who would go through all of the, the painful and, and uh, you know, um, procedures and, and treatments um, you know, if you weren't legitimately harmed or hurt or hurting, you know, I mean, would you go get an operation if you felt perfectly fine? 
No. You wouldn't put yourself through all of that. But when the court um, turned around and, and sided with the defense, um, <laughs> it was because she had no lawyer and knew that she couldn't appeal the decision. And that if he ruled in her favor, you can guarantee that that lawyer was going to appeal the decision. And uh, I believe there was a little inequity, you know, inequitable situation there because they didn't even make a case in her, in her claim. They made no case whatsoever, none. And they had two doctors that saw her for about, well, I'd say less than an hour in four years. And meanwhile, all the doctors that she sees every day, every week, um, they just literally like closed the, you know, made a blind eye to it. Didn't recognize it, didn't take recognition. And then they say in Nebraska that, no, you cannot go after them uh, in civil court. You can't go after them uh, apart from workers' compensation, statutory, administrative um, tribunal. And that they're protected under that. So I've been contemplating all day because I just heard this this morning that she lost. Um, <laughs> how we're now going to bring this into equity to get, get a true remedy. And I will keep you guys posted as, as that situation uh, moves forward. All right, I'm going to open it up. Uh, anybody have any questions or comments or anything they'd like to add to uh, this topic? Even though we got a bunch of folks on here. The floor is yours. I don't know. If, I think it was Frank that was bringing something up earlier. Was that you, Frank, that was talking about the, uh, you started to say something about promissory notes? Hey, David. No, that was not me. I just got on a phone call uh, a few minutes ago. Oh. Okay. Yeah. But um, actually, I do have a question regarding change of venue. If maybe maybe we could talk about that, and some other people, maybe if they had some experience on that, they could uh, share. Um, so what's your question? From district family court to the superior court. Um, when I'm doing a change of venue, like like just here this past uh, Thursday. One of the clerks told me, so, you know, there's a change of venue form for changing the venue from one county to another county. But within the same courthouse, um, changing the venue from one district court, like district family court to superior court, it's like we, we've never, we haven't seen it. That was their response. Right. It's because they don't want to step on the toes of their administrative. Um, again, when the family court is not a court, it's an administrative tribunal. It's not uh, judicial. It's administrative, ministerial. It's up yeah, to so you to, we, you know. How do we put in that change of, how do we format that change of venue to move from district family court to superior court? Did you get a, did, did you pull up their change of venue form? 
Yep. Did just you just take a look at it? Yeah. Just from okay, so, so what, what, did, what did the wording say? I'll have to pull up again and get that wording, but it was like um, uh, like something along the lines of, uh, defendant moves the um, for a change of venue from um, plaintiff's county because defendant has moved to another county and 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 therefore it, it, it's uh, a change of venue is um, is warranted um, to have uh, court in defendant's county or something like that. Well, change of venue, and uh, you know, if you look back, like um, change of venue, a lot of times, uh, especially like if you look back to the South during you know the the fifties and the sixties, where you know uh, a, a black man couldn't get a fair trial in an all white county, you know, they would, yep. you know, the lawyer would put in a change of venue. Okay, a lot of the times it had to do with equity, fairness, you know, a fair trial. Um, venue can also be changed, again, if, if the subject matter of this, uh, you know. So if you wanted to remove from the superior court in your state and remove your case to the federal court, there was a, a question of constitutionality. Same within the local court there. So, and I know Ed's on the phone. If you are in the family court and they say that you don't have any constitutional rights in this court, you know you're in the wrong venue. It happened to me in Missoula. I was in the in the you know in the magistrate court, and they you know I I brought up my rights. She goes, you have no rights in here, <laughs> you know. I said, oh, well, then I must be in the wrong jurisdiction. We're, we're in the wrong venue, I mean. Not the wrong jurisdiction, the wrong venue. Because I have rights. I don't have privileges. I don't have a contract. I have rights. <laughs> and if I can't, you know, if my rights aren't recognized here, then I'm definitely in the wrong venue. She about came out and told me that. And it's up to you, to, again, it's up to you to, to notify Okay, we don't motion, we don't make motions, we, we, we give notice, and we support it with an affidavit, and we put that onto the record, okay? This venue, you know, let it hereby be noticed that, you know, uh, this venue does not recognize my constitutional rights or my God-given rights, okay? Um and again, you can put in their constitution into that venue and, and make them take notice of their duty and responsibility to uphold those uh, their trust in the public trust side, the equitable side of the court. And unfortunately, the, the two are merged in this country into one court. It's up to you to put them into equity and under their oath and they're not going to do it. <laughs> they're not going to just come out and go, "Hey, here's your choices." You know, you, we can we can we can deal with you on this side where we can extort you, and you're going to have to follow, you know, politician A, B, and C's, uh, you know, opinions that they made up, okay, uh, last week. Or 
you can go in and, and, and turn around and, and uh, uh, say they're, they're not going to turn around and go, or you can hold us to our oath and, and force us to, uh, you know, to have this duty to protect you and, and, and uh, a fiduciary responsibility because they took away all the money to uh, provide for you. Okay, that's the equitable side, and it's up to you to, you know, um, bring up that equity uh, venue. It's within the same court. Again, you're not going to find that in the family court because it's administrative tribunal. It's not a court of law either. It's an administrative tribunal, strictly a contractual uh, venue. What state's he in, Dave? Frank's in Go North get a Carolina. Pen. Go get a pen, Frank. Okay. <laughs> North Carolina. North Carolina. Yeah, yeah right near you. <laughs> All right. All right, Frank. So it's a, a family uh, child support uh, enforcement case or, or uh, a – This is custody as well. This is custody. It's custody. Okay. Um, well, for that, I would suggest a verified claim. But write this down anyway. You can look these up. North Carolina General Statute uh, 14-322. And then North Carolina Statute 15A is an apple, dash 1340-23. You said 50, as in 50? Uh, 15, 15, 15A. One 15A five, one five. One five is an apple, dash 1340-23. And for North Carolina, that's the state that proves, so, so your custody issue is happening in a, uh, in a family court uh, that's administrative, Dave's 100% right about that. There's not one judicial bone of authority in the whole place. It's all administrative. Uh, but what these two, what, what I use these two statutes for, what they, what the lawyers did who actually make the laws in our state or our state statutes is they split the statutes up and even put them in different titles, like in your case, uh, Title 14 and Title 15. But you have to put those together to see that you're being tried in an improper venue. Family court is, is civil and quasi-criminal, but they never mention the quasi-criminal part. Because there's, no yeah, there's no there's legitimate Yeah, there's no legitimate jurisdiction for quasi-criminal. Right. There's no, there's, no, there's no such jurisdiction. In other words, if you went to the judge and said, hey, judge, can you... Uh, can you tell me where I can find the uh, book on the North Carolina state rules of quasi-criminal procedure that I may know how to defend myself? Uh, that's going to upset him. I, kn I know that for a fact because I've done it a few times. Uh, but basically, there's, there's a link there between the child support enforcement, which is what I specialize, and this. And what you want to do is you want to file for a hearing for improper venue. Okay, that's that's one. The second way you can do it is you can go to your uh, 
federal district court website, whatever that is in North Carolina, I don't, I don't know how many districts they have there. Like in, in Georgia, they only have one. It's called the Northern District. But in North Carolina, they may have several uh, district courts, federal district courts. But what you want to do is go on their website and look up form J is in uh, Jackie, S is in Sam, dash 044. Is that a removal to federal uh, federal court? It is, and your reason is going to be so. You'll put uh, you'll check off remove from state court, remove from state court in item three or numeral three. Um, constitutional and then, question. And well, put federal question. You have a federal question. Federal question, and also uh, diversity jurisdiction as well. In his case, it would be because again. He's coming from an equitable standpoint. Uh, he is separating himself from the, the uh, public. Okay. As a man. Yeah. As so a man. maybe. So, so again, maybe. There is maybe a... Yeah. Maybe diversity is is better suited for him. But whenever well, you could I do, do both. it from China, you could definitely do we, both. Well, it tells you though you only only to check one. I think on the form. Hmm. Let me pull it. Okay. Let me pull it up real quick. I'm pretty. Okay. I'm, well, I'm pretty sure that it's a federal question anyway, because again, when they go in, when you go into that family court, you have no constitutional rights, as they will tell you. Um, that alone is a federal question. You know, you're supposed to have all these protections that the Constitution's supposed to provide. Well, if you're going in and being dragged into this court and they don't provide that, you're in the wrong place. You know, I can fix this for him. How long have the kids, uh, so is a custody from an ex-wife? Is that right? Correct. Correct. Okay. How long? Um, October. Well, yes, in October, they, um, they, were, they, this, they went back with their mom. Um, the, that's when they incarcerated me on October 26th until October 30th, and that's how they got my children. Um, you know, so that, that coercion and duress is how they, you know, got my, my daughters. Okay, so who who incarcerated you? The judge in the family court? Correct. Okay, so, and was that for contempt? Um, yeah, I sued the judge, and uh, then they um, set the uh, another court date without giving me um, uh, notice of it, and I didn't get notice of it until the until October twenty sixth when the uh, sheriff deputies uh, came to arrest me. Okay, so you, failure, you, you didn't they get They arrested him for failure to appear. They arrested him failure for failure to appear. That's why they arrested me, for failure to appear. Okay, and did the so notice had, to appear appear on the clerk's, uh, on the record of the clerk? No, what I'm saying is that um, on October 20th, um, the court date was uh, marked out as removed because the judge recused herself. She um, passed it on to another um, family court judge, and they had court on the 26th of October. I wasn't notified of that, so I wasn't. I didn't. I was not know. You know, aware to attend it. And um, so they issued failure to appear to court. So they held me in contempt of court for failure to appear. And a sheriff deputy came out to my house to arrest me. And while he was talking with me, he said another. Guy from what a warrant, warrant was. He said another um, deputy sheriff was uh, on his way with the warrant. Okay. Was All your right. mom? Was your mom at home, Frank, when that happened? Oh, yeah, my mother and my two daughters, um, we had just pulled up in my driveway. 
Why okay. couldn't Why couldn't they leave the, your daughters in custody with your mother? That's That's interesting too. No, they could have very well done that and taken. They did leave them in custody with my mother. Um, I, I told myself I'm leaving my children because they told me to say, you know, got you got two um, two uh, ways to um, when you go to when you go to jail to get out, and that's what because they didn't put a bond on there. They so you can uh, have your daughters go back with their mom and then put it back in public school. And I said um, I'm gonna leave them in cu- the care and custody of my mother uh, until we can go to court because all the you know um, bad issues in the environment that their mother was in. So um, while I was in jail. The mother's uh, attorney and her was lying to uh, the family court judge, and then they issued uh, an emergency ex parte order to take my my daughters from my mother and give them to their mother. While you were in jail. While I was in jail. Okay. Okay, so so step number one, Frank, call the county sheriff where this took place. Tell him that you need a warrant out of the warrant book. And you want a copy of that October 26 warrant. You're probably going to find that it was never signed. Tell them you want a copy of the warrant. You want a copy of the af- the signed affidavit. Something that I found out, uh, Chris Henry and I found out last week, uh, we called the sheriff on exactly an issue similar, very similar to yours. And we got the sheriff deputy on the phone, and we asked the sheriff, uh, if they know that the warrant is unlawful, why are they serving it? And the sheriff's deputy said, well, we're, we're you know, that's just part of our job to serve warrants. And again, we asked. Why are you serving warrants if you know that they're not lawful warrants? And she said, well, it's just the way we've, you know, the system, you know, the system uh, cranks it out and we, we go serve them. That's our job. And so I had the fortitude and the insight to ask the sheriff deputy on the phone because we had our client on the phone at the same time that Chris and I were on the phone. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Are you under a contract with the uh, Child Support Enforcement Agency, or let's just say in your case the family court? Are you under Are you under contract with them? Uh, some type of contract with them that I'm not a party to. And the sheriff's deputy said, "I'm not at liberty to say." <laughs> of course not. Which means yes. He is under. He okay. is, they are under a Title Four contract, four D contract. Right. So the problem so in your the family court, court case, the the problem that you're having, Frank, is that you haven't demanded a copy of the third party contract. You need to see a copy of the contract that they have uh, with Title Four D, the 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 county, the state, or both. You 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 need to demand a copy of that contract be entered into the record from the opposing counsel. You can also use that once you get it for your removal to federal court. Title Four D is a federal program, and the federal court has original jurisdiction. Frank, did you happen to serve them a bill of particulars? No, I haven't gotten that far yet. Okay. I don't even think I have your bill. Yeah, I do not have your bill of particulars. But once I get it, I'll do it. Okay. I'll send it. Well, to you. yeah. 
So, yeah, send them a bill of particulars, have them file that. You file it with the clerk and the opposing counsel, Frank, because you can argue jurisdiction. You can challenge jurisdiction at any time. He did get a copy of the uh, verified claim as well, though. That was one of the things he's working on here. Oh, he did. Okay, well, good. I was going to bring that up next, but I've got something else you gentlemen may be interested in. Because we can prove that it's quasi-criminal, because obviously they locked him up, right? Uh, Correct. Yep. I've done and they seem I've done it as an exhibit, and I, ha I don't think I've sent it to you yet, David, but it's something that Chris and I have been working on this past week. You know, we had uh, rolling uh, thunderstorms and tornadoes come through here last Thursday night, and it knocked out our Internet power lines. And, I mean, this thing didn't just knock down the power lines. It knocked down the poles that hold the power lines. So, uh, yeah, they said it was the tornado was on the ground for 90 minutes. But let me just, uh, let me just read this to you. Uh, I don't think I've sent it to you yet, but let me just, uh, if you don't mind, uh, David, I'm going to read it no, to you. No, no, please, go ahead. Administrative Office of the United States Court, it was signed by James C. Duff, Director. And this is a memorandum. This letter went to all United States judges. It went to circuit executives. It went to federal public and community defenders. It went to district court executives. It went to all clerks. It went to the United States District Courts. It went to the Chief Probation Officers and the Chief Pretrial Services Officers. James C. Duff is the Commissioner of the Administrative Office. Regarding Statutory Amendment to Criminal Rule 5, Initial Appearance. So when you first went in front of this judge, Frank, that's what it's talking about. They told you it was civil, but it's actually quasi-criminal. This is what uh, Trump did for all of us. And uh, those that hate Trump probably won't after I get through reading this. But if anybody that doesn't agree with Trump should go back and look at his executive orders because he's the only president that I know that put executive orders in to help we the people and not the government themselves. The only one. You, you compare him to any other president, and his all had something to do with bettering the, the life of the American people. So here's what it says. And, and they fought this, too, by the way. The, the establishment fought this, uh, this executive order. But there, here's what it says. On October 21, 2020, the president signed into law the Due Process Protection Act, publication, public law number 116-182, 134 stat 894, on October 21, 2020 which amends Criminal Rule 5 initial appearance by adding a requirement that trial judges in all proceedings on the first scheduled court date when both the prosecutor and defense counsel are present issue an oral and written order confirming the prosecutor's disclosure obligations under Brady v. Maryland, 373 U.S. 83, 1963, and his progeny, and number two, notifying the prosecution of the possible con consequences of violating the order. The amendment to Rule 5 further requires that each judicial council promulgate a model order for use by the judges. This link will take you to the enrolled bill, and there's a link in it. Uh, all right, here's the fight part. 
As many of you know, the Judicial Conference of the United States has consistently opposed direct amendment of the federal rules by legislation, instead urging that Congress defer the deliberative process to the Rules Enabling Act 28 U.S.C. 2071 through 2077, which authorizes amendments to the federal rules of criminal procedure after broad public participation and review by the bench, academia, the bar, the judicial conference, the Supreme Court, and Congress. Consistent with this position, the chairs of the Judicial Conference Committee on Rules of Practice and Procedure of Statutory Amendment to Criminal Rule 5 Initial Appearance. Advisory Committee on Criminal Rules sent a letter to leadership of the House Judiciary Committee opposing the direct amendment of Criminal Rule 5 detailing the committee's extensive and continuing work on prosecutorial disclosure obligations and urging that Congress defer to the Rules Enabling Act process. Unfortunately, that effort was not successful. So what does that mean to you, Frank? That means that if, if the judge didn't put in a written order on your first appearance saying that uh, what Brady, what the Brady versus Maryland is, that's the Due Process Protection Act. And it says that the, the opposing counsel or the prosecutor has to turn over all information to you that's exculpatory or would keep you from having to defend your charges, the, the charges against you. So if they didn't produce a copy of that third-party contract, Frank, they already violated your due process. And I'm hey, going to uh, put this... I'm going to put this letter together and send it to both you and uh, Daniel, David. Okay, great. Would would that also include uh, um, the elements of jurisdiction as well? I mean, you would think so, right? Everything. Don't they have to? They're supposed to right. turn I mean, over everything. Right, but I mean, again, jurisdiction and over subject matter over the uh, in personam is exculpatory when you're dealing with legal fictions. Oh. Right. I'm having Only a situation if it's challenged. Well, Only if again, it's challenged. Yeah. Right, again, but that's anything. They're not going to give up willingly exculpatory evidence unless you, you know it exists and you're asking for it. That's why, you know, they'd rather kangaroo you right through. Right. But that's why, you know, a bill of particulars and, and wanting to know the nature and cause is uh, is paramount. But, you know, that which all goes toward jurisdiction without the jurisdiction there's they have no right to hear the case they have no authority to hear the case right well frank doesn't know this but the uh, question about the due process protection act in brady versus maryland is actually encompassed in the bill of particulars it's in there question number 45 i think so it'll it'll be part of what he's asking for anyway but the reason that this letter is so big you know what we're doing right now david we're going back into cases that have been open for months, like Frank's is right now, and we're right. filing them with the clerk of the court, telling the clerk to remove the case. To uh, federal also, court? I, no, no, to remove it from the docket. Because, so uh, totally, the, yeah, to wipe it out, to, to discharge it. Yeah, to get rid of it, because uh, I sent you a case law that was uh, just enacted by the Supreme Court and everybody else should uh, look at this case. It's uh, The address is supremecourt.gov, and the case is, uh, it's a weird uh, name, but it was decided, it, you'll see on the, 
on the on the uh, home page of SupremeCourt.gov, you go down about a third of the page and you'll see something that says recent cases. And the last the first the last case or the first case that shows up there on that list is uh, from Mar- decided March eighth of twenty twenty one of this year. Oh wow! And what this it month. says, yeah, this month. And uh, the name of the case is Urimbingwe versus Prez Whiskey. So just look for Prez Whiskey, uh, P-R-E-C-W-E-S-K-I. And what I want everybody to do that's listening to the call is to look up the case and look at uh, Chief Judge Thomas's decision, or decision on that case. And basically what that decision says is uh, – if what happened was it was about a uh, a guy out here in Georgia at one of the local colleges, and he was uh, a Christian and he was trying to preach on campus, and the campus security had two uh, designated areas where you could do that, where you could talk about your beliefs or whatever, but you couldn't do it anywhere else on campus. So they removed the guy from campus to one of the two places, and then when they did that, uh, they came over and harassed him again and said, well, we're getting complaints, so you're going to have to stop, period. So the guy was looking for, he sued the college, and uh, the college said, well, we've changed our policy on that after, after they got sued. They said, we changed our policy on that, therefore, this case is over and there, there's no relief because we've changed our policy. Well, it got all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what Chief Judge Thomas said is, uh, in, under Article Three, even though they may have gotten rid of the underlying problem, that we, the people, still have a redress of grievance. In other words, if it already took place, and even if they changed the situation where it's no longer a problem, you still have the right to seek redress of grievance. The second part of his decision and it's only a couple of paragraphs long. It won't take you long to read it. But the second part of his decision said that, and this is the important part that, that I want to make sure everybody understands. When you file something like a bill of particulars into your case that's never answered, and they only have a set uh, a number of days to answer that those questions, uh, what, what uh, Chief Justice Thomas brought up was the doctrine of mootness. And he said in that in that document that, or in his decision, that if you if the prosecutor or opposing counsel does not maintain an interest in the case, then the case becomes moot. So if you live in a state like uh, Georgia where uh, they have 30 days to respond and they don't respond to it, then they have not maintained the interest in the case, and therefore Justice Thomas just said that that case is now moot. What does that mean? That means the case is over. So uh, Chris and I designed a letter to the clerk attaching the letter that I just read to everybody uh, from the administrative office because what are these courts? They're administrative. These are their bosses that wrote the letter. Trump did an executive order, and he changed it and included the Brady Act into the uh, Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure Number 5. So what that means for everybody is if a case can be done for mootness, what, what Chief Justice Thomas was saying is the case itself is moot, but you still have 
uh, a redress of grievance issue that has to be adjudicated. And that is huge for us folks. We haven't seen law come across like this in probably the last 50 years. But this one is, uh, well, I take that back. In 2018, uh, administrative law judges have to be appointed properly under Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution. Uh, so anybody that's dealing with an administrative law judge, and I guarantee you just about everybody on this call that has anything to do with court is dealing with an administrative law judge. Uh, you should look that up. Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. The case on that is uh, Lucia, L-U-C-I-A, versus the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that is a case well worth reading as well if you're having trouble with the administrative law judge. So anyway, we're, we put a, a, a letter together for the clerk, not the judge, because if the, if the judge is disregarding the Bill of Particulars, he's also disregarding your uh, order for a dismissal and everything else that we file into the case. So we tell the clerk, since this letter went to all the clerks, you need to remove this case from the docket. And, and then is if the case is moved, it's over. Case from the docket, discharging or dismissing the actual case? Yeah, in because other words, it, if the case isn't on the docket, it can't be heard. Right, I know that, but it, it, you don't want it stuck there, you know, if a rule changes that they can come back. Well, and well, there's nothing to say that... that uh, there's nothing to say that Biden won't try to change it, but in this letter it says that uh, it's law. It's law. Right. They, they they fought it, and uh, it's it, unfortunately it can't be changed. So right. No, I understand that, but I'm saying that when you when you put in your request, you put in the request to have it discharged, so that it's no longer sitting there, you know, open. Well, like what I'm going to do. Yeah, what I'm going to do when uh, when I get my internet back up is I'm going to send it to both you and Daniel along with the letter to the clerk, and I included the uh, Prez Whiskey uh, decision in the letter. So basically, okay. when they see this letter and they see the Prez Whiskey decision, and and they're going to know that the letter went out to all clerks, they're, they're going to know that they have to, by law, they have to remove that case from the docket. And if they remove that case, there is no action, and the case is void for mootness. Gotcha. Perfect. Well, yeah. void what would be saying, perfect. Void works, too. Right. right. What he's saying in the decision, this Pres Whiskey decision, the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice Thomas, what he's saying is, is that if they didn't maintain an interest in the action, in other words, if they didn't answer your bill of particulars on time, or they didn't answer it in a timely manner, they showed that they lost interest in prosecuting the case, and therefore the case is moot. That's what uh, Chief Justice Thomas is saying. And you can so further is that, prove is, that. Is that for any um, yes. any uh, yes. due process violation at all, right? Yes. If you go, yes, any due process violation. And also, uh, if you read the case, it says that even if the relief sought is a dollar, so let's huh. say you don't know how much you want for redress of grievance. You know, you, you, you can't put a build time and all that stuff that you used to have to keep up with to come up with uh, how you arrived at how much relief you were seeking. That doesn't Right, matter. but your redress if, could be an injunction, can it? 
It, it can. It can. But it's got to be adjudicated. That's the beauty of it. And the reason and I what about using because, an estoppel? Would that work as well? Yeah, well, the, the letter to the clerk is kind of like an estoppel. Okay. We're putting the clerk on the hook here. That's what we're doing. Because we know the judge is willing to press forward with the case without the questions being answered. Or the due process being violated. Take your pick. But, but the reason that I know this, David, is because if you read further down in the Pres Whiskey decision, there's one dissent by Chief Justice Roberts. And Roberts says in his dissent that if, uh, because of this law, it's going to create a, a burdensome strain on courts from here on out. And he's absolutely right about that. Boo-hoo. <laughs> That's all I got to say is boo-hoo. They had that burden to begin with. Question. Hey, uh, guys, I, I have, um, want to ask you about that Presbinsky case. Is that... Um, I'm going to spell it here. Is uh, U, Z as in zebra, U, E, G for George, B for Barry, U, A, I'm sorry, U, N, A, M versus. That's it. Yes, Pres it. Pres Whiskey. P-R-E-C-Z-E-W-S-K-I, number 19-968. That's it. March 8, 2021. Yep. Georgia Gwinnett College, a public college, sought to course with students about his religion and hand out religious literature on campus? Yeah, find the decision of uh, Chief Thomas, Chief Justice Thomas. It'll be in the first four. I think it's on page four. You know, if you if you open up the case, look on page four, because I don't have internet, or I would do it. I would do it. But everybody needs to hear what Judge Thomas said in that in that opinion, in that decision. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to... I'm trying to uh, this is the supreme law of the land, folks. This is it. I'm trying to find a case so I can open it up because uh, you should see I, three icons on top of the case where you found it, and I think it's the icon to the far left, right above the uh, name of the case. Is that back on the Supreme Court .gov website? .gov, yeah. Okay, yeah. let me put that in there. Let me put it in there. Uh, Y'all can go ahead and keep talking. When I when I find it, I'll and pull it up. I'll let you know. All right, while he's oh, looking well, for that, I've got a question for you, please. Go ahead. Ed, this is Daniel again. Can you go, can you go ahead and, and uh, recite that um, executive order? i got a pen and paper, and I wanted to read that one that you were referring to. Well, I don't have the clerk letter because I don't have the Internet. I can't get to my emails. But uh, as soon as I, I can get find it. I, I've got Internet. We haven't had our, our telephone poles blown down. I'll look it up. What was? Uh, give me some parameters so I can understand well, it was, look for anything around October 20th, or, or I'll tell you the exact date. Hang on. October 21st, 2020. And it was enacted in, on October 26th. That's how quickly it, the law changed. Uh, you it was, said it, uh, was, it was the Due Process Act? Yeah, the Due Process Protections Act, uh, public law number 116-182. And that and was created out of executive order. Right. And then 134, and here's that part, 134 stat 894. So what does that mean for the people listening from now on? 
if they go into a criminal case or a quasi-criminal case. Even if they call it civil, it's probably still quasi-criminal. Well, it's uh, always going to be administrative. So, again, I mean, when you're dealing in these family courts or the traffic courts or you're dealing in, you know, most most of these lower, well, all of these lower courts anyway, uh, they're not judicial, right. so... Right. So what, is, what does it mean, though? What, what it means is if you go to, a, a, let's say, an arraignment, and the judge does not issue an oral and written order on the record, and he doesn't notify the prosecution of the possible consequences for violating his order, then you're going to walk free because that's an automatic due process violation. All you should do is keep your mouth shut, let it go 30 days, and then send this letter that I'm going to send David and Dan. That's all you got to do. I found and then they're going to know that opinion. it's over. I found the opinion. It. All right, go ahead. Read it to everybody, please. The uh, okay. opinion of Judge Thomas. All right. Right before that starts, it says Thomas J. delivered the opinion of the court in which Breyer Alito Sotomayor uh, Kagan Sotomayor, um, the, uh, was it Kavanaugh and Brett joined Kavanaugh J a concurrent opinion and it says here justice thomas delivered the opinion of the court at all stages of litigation a plaintiff must maintain a personal interest in the dispute the doctrine of standing generally assess whether the interest exists at the outset while the doctrine of mootness considers whether it exists throughout the, pro the proceeding to demonstrate standing the plaintiff must not only establish an injury that is fairly traceable to the challenged conduct, but must also seek a remedy that redresses that injury. And if in the course of litigation, a court finds that it can no longer provide a plaintiff with an effectual relief, the case, is, the case generally is moot. The case asks whether an award of nominal damages by itself can redress a past injury. We hold that it can. And it can so you, you ever can heard put in a bill. So that's saying you can put in a bill for your damages. That's right. It doesn't matter. Even if it's for a dollar, if you read further down in the, in the case, even if the bill you present for a dollar, they still have to adjudicate the relief. That's so now you basically that's that's great because now they're you're, they're saying there's a redress within that within that venue, right at right. that time. Right, but even beyond that, uh, David, what it's saying is is that your case becomes moot, and now all that's left on the table is the redress agreements. Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I'm have to that's look a, into that's that some more as well. That's a huge decision for us, folks. That's a big win for uh, we the people, th this case is. That also kind of applies then, too, for, you know, like my case, a, a debt case, um, where a debt buyer, you know, buys a, a collective group of, of debts and then claims they are harmed by the full amount of the contract. Yes, agreed. I mean, okay. it's kind of like a. It's, what you just said to me is kind of like a banker trying to uh, foreclose on a mortgage 
but they don't actually have the underlying mortgage. Right, I mean, and they, they got no, a lot of problems back then. Yeah. Right, they created no, uh, they, they, there was no consideration, no legitimate consideration of value. Right, in other words, in his case, he didn't contract with the uh, people that bought up the debt. He only contracted right. with whoever the debt was originally with. So that's the only ones that can bring action against him. Right, and their only claim is what skin they have in the game. So if they bought it for $0.10 cents on the dollar, you should be able to settle for the same. And if you, or, if you were to, or if at all. <laughs> Does this mean yeah, that starts, gonna... uh, everything from the 21st forward, this is not the ex post facto. It doesn't, go, it doesn't precede anything that happened prior to the 21st of October. Am I correct? Well, if you were on the prosecution side or on the government side, that would be correct. But there's no law in the Constitution saying that once they make it the supreme law of the land, that it doesn't stand in an earlier case for we the people. So it could be grandfathered in your saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. There's no, they can't point to any law that says we can't use ex post facto laws if they now consider it the supreme law of the land. Sure, well, that's that like going back and looking at a right. And if you had a, a prosecutor <laughs> or a judge who was found to be guilty of a crime, and they reopen all their cases and have to re-examine all their decisions, um, ex post facto. Let let me put let me uh, let me even uh, go one further than that. The Due Process Protection Act, Brady versus Maryland was instituted in 1963. So there ain't nobody on this phone call that couldn't use this uh, exactly what I'm saying right now. Right. Well, the Constitution was created as well to protect due process violations in the first place. So why wouldn't it be applicable all the way back? Yeah. What uh, I think what Daniel's saying is if, if, if he went to an arraignment, and this didn't take place prior to October 20th, 2021, or 2020, would he be able to, would he be able to then use this? Uh, and most likely, if the case is still open, like in your case, Daniel, this would apply because they haven't it's shown an open. interest in doing anything with your case for a year or better. Probably two years. They're not, they're, they're not keeping an, they're not keeping a, an interest in the case, and now it's the supreme law of the land. So once I send you this clerk letter, and once I send you this uh, this uh, this uh, this order, that the clerk's going to know that they have a a solemn duty to follow because it's the supreme law of the land now, and they're being told by the administrative offices, that, yes, this is law, even though we don't like it, it's law. Yeah, then I I say you have every right to file it and have the clerk take the case off the docket, and that'll get rid of the warrant. I'm I'm wondering if the the uh, ex post facto redress of grievances even would would uh, would be grandfathered because uh, you could have a case that was riddled with due process violations that was you know adjudicated and closed and you never got your redress of grievances you're still entitled or you should the reason. Right, and what I'm saying is the reason they can't fight the letter is because now it's the supreme law of the land, even though it might not have been back when all this happened. But Brady versus Maryland was there from the beginning. 
And Brady, it says that the judge has to enter a written order into the record uh, to have the prosecutor turn over all exculpatory evidence that, that would have helped you uh, from defending the charges. They just skip it, folks. They pretend like it doesn't exist, and if you don't bring it up, they're certainly not going to. Right. I, I just found that part that you just mentioned about um, uh, fuller down uh, on the opinion. It's on page yeah. 11. Go it ahead says, and read it. It says that this rule developed at common law is unsurprising in the light of the non-economic right that individuals had at that time. A contrary rule would have meant, in many cases, that there was no remedy at all for those rights, such as due process or voting rights, that were not readily reducible to monetary valuation. See D. Dobbs, Law of Remedies, Statute 3.3, Subsection 2, nominal damages are often awarded for a right not economic in character, and for which no substantial non-pecuniary award is available. See also Kerry versus Pipus, P-I-P-H-U-S, awarding nominal damages for a violation of procedural due process by permitting plaintiffs to pursue nominal damages whenever they suffered a personal legal injury. The common law avoided the oddity of, of pri- privileging small dollar economic rights over important but not easily quantifiable non pecuniary rights. That's before section B. So it, it, what I'm thinking that saying is, is it, 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 you know, again, rather than taking a, a judge to small claims court, this should happen right there. I, you would think, you know, well, being that being that we've been looking at the the small claims court for, for you know remedy uh, or, or a redress of the grievance of, of exactly this thing with the due process violations, um, this should you know uh, save that step. You should be able to do it right then and there after bringing up this case into your into your uh, into the record. Agreed. Very, very interesting stuff. Thank you yeah, very this much. Is it, guys. Yeah, this, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. Because now we're saying that if they don't answer your bill of particulars in 30 days, and I know you have that problem in your case, Daniel, uh, they didn't show an interest in prosecuting the case, therefore the case is over for mootness. They can't, they can't collect anything from you, and they can't do anything to you. And that should stop it right in its tracks. Void. Yeah, Mo- void. Void for mootness. <clears throat> anyway, we'll develop this over time, but when I read this decision, I had to read it like four or five times because it says even if it's if the redress is for one dollar. It is. It is still. It still has to be done, and that's why uh, Justice Roberts dissented, saying, "Do you realize how much work this is going to cause for the courts? Because now they can't collect anything. Now it's just a question of how much is going to be paid." 
Oh, it's gonna it's gonna force them to answer questions or pay up because they right. again they right they right now they just railroad right over you and 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 you know push the case through the hell with your grievances and and that's what they uh, you know they, they 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 plan on that they they use that to their advantage all the time now they can't get away with it that's why he's dissenting and as you heard Frank just say when he was reading that last part of the decision, if it's a due process violation that you can't really put a dollar amount on, the the defendant or the accused still has a right to redress a grievance. He could put a bill in there for, you know, like when the judges ask our clients in small claims court, how did you arrive at your uh, claim amount, our right. clients just tell them, that's exactly what I charge whenever somebody sitting in a position of honor, profit, and trust violates my due process. It just there happens to coincide, Your Honor. <laughs> well, now there's no now there's no you know statutory limit because again you you know I mean it's almost like a civil redress. It's not uh, you know the dollar value isn't limited like you would be in small claims court. Right. But they the reason a, I like the they, small they claims court, yeah. The reason I like the small claims court process is, let's say, let just follow me on this for a second. If you get another state judge to say that your due process was violated or you were in a uh, involved in a fraudulent contract, and then my client goes and files a state claim and a federal uh, uh, federal court claim, a 1983 yeah. claim. Right. Do you think that either one of those big, those high-dollar cases are ever going to see the inside of a courtroom now that another judge in the same state has said that their due process has been violated? No, because then it would be moot, just like that. I mean, again, you're going into the small claims court to get some semblance of justice against the man or the woman who actually violated your due process rights, not the office of judge. That's right. Not the office That's right. of so in the yeah. small claims, we're suing them in their private capacity, but in the state right. and federal claim, we're suing them in their That's public official. capacity. Right, exactly. And the thing is, it acts like a declaratory judgment at the uh, small claims level, and you're not going to get bumped out of it on fair to state a claim at the uh, state or federal level. It's pretty brilliant. Yeah, all this, let me tell you what's going to happen. All that's going to happen is it's going to be a question of how much they're going to pay, but it's never going to see the inside of a courtroom. Well, that's going to that's going to again be a precedent setting like Travacant in Tampa, you know, uh, you know your time, you know the time value of money as per, you know, the the wrongful arrest and imprisonment. Um, what was what a thousand dollars a minute? Yeah, that's the highest that I've seen. Right, which is why I like using Travacant and 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 you know in these cases. But um, there's going to be one uh, eventually, being that this was the first case here on the eighth. Was there a uh, was there a dollar amount awarded in that case, Ed? Uh, well, when they made their decision, they send it back to the lower court in the state, and they let them adjudicate it. Oh, okay. So, so that's where it got back. Yeah, in this particular case, it went back to the lower case. The case was over because it was moot. And now the question is, how much the college is going to pay the kid for violating his due process? There you go. Looks like he'll be getting a free education. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, and some and some and some spending money too. Right. <laughs> Take out his buddies. <laughs> you know, I tell this story for another reason too, not just to inform the people that are listening, but also to let them know that you need to understand how significant this change is of Trump putting that many conservative judges on the bench because now it's all it's all going back towards the Constitution. You know, they mentioned Article Three in this latest decision several times throughout the case. They mentioned common law several times throughout the case. Well, that's because it made it to the Supreme Court, and that is right. common law. It is it is an Article Three court where the average schmo that goes into court is not getting that luxury of an Article Three tribunal or, or, or court. He's getting an administrative tribunal or a you know a quasi criminal tribunal, which is no different. I mean, it's still arbitrary or still uh, administrative. Right. No, no, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. But in this case, this Press Whiskey case, it says if your due process was violated at any stage during the proceedings that you have the right for a redress of grievance, even if they've gone back and cured whatever caused the violation, you still have the right to redress for grievance, even if it's for but a single dollar. And that's going to be right. huge. That's going to be huge for us. Very exciting. Can I, can I tell Ed what, what happened on Friday? Go ahead. What which one, Daniel or Frank? I'm, I'm not sure who was talking first, so I'm waiting for the moderator. Oh, you go ahead. Okay. 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 Well, first, just so we all talk about the um, the case down there in Florida with the city of Tampa versus Trey Zavant, but <clears throat> I haven't yet researched it, so I feel funny about saying this, but I know that there are people that got time, uh, maybe more than myself, to look at it. There's a, a case out there called uh, Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company, uh, versus Cleopatra um, Hazlitt, and uh, it was about, uh, I believe it was 200 times uh, the damage award. It's actually a greater damage award than the, um, than the uh, Trezevant case, I was told. But like I said, this is just hearsay because I haven't researched it myself, but maybe there's someone else that will have the time. I haven't done it yet. But you're talking about the you know, punitive damages award. And that, that's that particular case is about a punitive damage award by an Alabama state jury. A jury, excuse me. Was she imprisoned? Is that what it was? An unlawful imprisonment? It was a punitive or? damage award by the an Alabama state jury. Uh, um, it was awarded. I'm, I'm, I haven't read it yet. I haven't uh, gone through it. I was just relating it for information because that's what we do. We share information on here. Sure. But I was told yeah. that it was a it was a better decision as far as um, for the people than the uh, Trezevant case that everyone talks about. Was it, you know, was it the, prior to or after? Uh, uh, 1990, 1991 case. Okay. By next week I'll read it. Sorry, Frank, I, I guess I got the floor first. Go ahead, brother. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I think I just found what you just mentioned. Um, if it, is it Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company versus Cleopatra Haslip, H-A-S-L-I-P, yeah, that's Supreme what I'm Court of Alabama. That's what I've been giving you. 
That's it. September 15, 1989. I think it was finished in 91, I was told. But... Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now I'll just, I'll just go with it, and uh, that way if anyone wants to look it up for what you were saying, that's, that's the uh, the correct, you know. Um, Is there a case the summary there, Frank, that you could just read out real quick? It's uh, Pacific yeah. Mutual Life Insurance Company versus No, no, no. Uh, was there a summary? A summary of Let's it. Here. Supreme Court of Alabama. Let's see. Let's see if there's a summary real quick. Summary on the ruling. I got something right here, actually. Um, I found it. Um, it's a... Uh, it's a law review. <clears throat> it's about the punitive damages and the modern meeting of procedural due process. Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company versus Haslip. Punitive damages and the modern meaning of procedural due process. In May of 1990, a jury found that agents of the Woodman of World Life Insurance Company had defrauded teacher's aide Sylvia Urigas of $212,000. The jury awarded her compensatory damages plus punitive damages of over $55 million. Although only the jury members will ever know precisely how they reached this figure, it is clear that plaintiff's attorney provided them with scant encouragement to apply any rational process in making a determination. Reflecting on the case, which he characterized as a classic passion pay, plaintiff's attorney Pat Maloney summarized his trial strategy. The, jury, the case wasn't that exciting unless the jury became outraged. We told the jury that this company took advantage of Sylvia when she was at her NADAR. She was pregnant and her husband had just died. So I said that since Woodman of the World took Sylvia's nest egg, they ought to take the company's. I asked for the entire nest egg. Um, nor did the court provide the jury with much rational guidance. In Texas, as in most states, the decision whether to award punitive damages, uh, the decisions whether to award punitive damages, and if so, how much to award, are left almost entirely in the jury's discretion. Um, anyway, that's what that's the summary that. Uh, so that was a procedural due process case. Um, which does go right along with what we've just been talking about with this new one, um, where Trezevant actually was a little bit different, not necessarily yeah, and it was wrongful imprisonment. Yeah, he got a, he got a damage of seventy five thousand for twenty three minutes incarceration, or or the lawyer did, and he got a few shekels for being thrown right. into a cell. Yeah, so that was a wrongful imprisonment. This is procedural due process, so it may fit right in line with uh, with with looking at the money award for uh, redress of grievances uh, with the Suwiki uh, case. But only if you bring it up. Only if yeah, you bring it up on the record. It says here that uh, on, in the uh, in this particular law review, it says it says. Uh, in 1989, it rejected the argument that the excessive fines clause applies to punitive damage awards. Um, last term, the court um, excuse me, completed its detachment of the federal constitution from the regulation of punitive damages awards in Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company versus Haslip when it held that the due process clause places practically no limits on the state court's ability to allow these awards. Thus, punitive damages awards remain almost completely within the discretion of the jury. So there you go. That's a, that is why it was being sent to me. Now I understand why it was uh, brought to my attention. So that, yeah, that coincides the, real nicely with this one. Yeah, this, the, listen, I'm telling everybody on the line tonight that this is a game changer. This case that I just quoted, Prez Whiskey, this is a game changer. This puts the ball back in the people's court. 
So even if you're in an administrative, uh, you know, you're dealing with an administrative law judge and you're dealing, you know, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but the superior courts in their state can act either judicially or administratively. And trust or me, if they're calling you in there and enforcing state statutes, it's administrative. Trust me. Right. Yep. So uh, well, also anything I to, to say, do with uh, statutes. Yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, going back to Frank, Frank, be sure to do what I said about calling the sheriff tomorrow, asking them for the uh, the desk uh, officer that does the warrants, and tell them you need a copy of that warrant and everything that came along with it. I think you're yeah, going really to find. Do. I think you're going to find that uh, they're either going to have a hard time finding it, or they're going to send it to you. And you can even ask them on the phone: Is it signed by the judge? And if they say no, then you your first question should be, well, why did you serve a defective warrant? Why did you serve a defective warrant on me? Uh, wouldn't you want to get that in writing? Well, no. Or no, I mean, because <laughs> now that he's heard me say it, he can ask the uh, deputy officer, uh, are you under some kind of contract with the family law court that I'm not aware of? And he's probably going to get the same answer I did. I'm not at liberty to say. I would almost getting, bet that you could get with a FOIA request that you could get that contract. But yeah. if you have an open case, you should be able to get it under the under Brady v. Maryland. Well, see, that's the whole point. Under Brady v. Maryland, it should have been made part of the record to begin with. Right. Because because you could have inspected a contract that you were not a party to, but you're being held accountable Four. And that should go along with any of these uh, family law cases. And I know we have a lot of folks on, uh, you know, that the, that we've been helping with these. Um, you know, Chris and Johnny and everybody, uh, Tish, all dealing with the same type of situation and and the same, uh, you know, uh, violations, due process violations. Well, Angie in Colorado comes to mind, too. I don't know if she's here tonight or not, but I, I keep her in the back of my mind because her case is long in the tooth. In other words, it's, there's, it's been a number of years. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, if this, Yeah, if this information wasn't presented in her case, now she has a redress of grievance issue. Uh, I also wanted to tell Frank, I, I heard y'all saying you're working on the verified claim. Uh, you're also putting in the brief in support of the verified claim, David. Yes. Okay. Uh, are you going to be? Are you planning on adding this now to the verified claim? Because uh, wouldn't that be where you would want to bring this up and for the record? Well, this this strategy goes to the clerk, not to the judge. We're 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 saying right, that you want to put it into the case. You would want to put it into the record. Would you do it through the verified claim or just a notice? Well, I do the verified claim first, and then I would uh, send the notice to the clerk. But I would okay. I would do the verified claim first uh, because you know Greenwood versus Cooper. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Cooper versus Greenwood. Every claimant must have their day in court. But on the verified claim, what I wanted to say is. Frank needs to follow that up, and he can talk to Tish about this because she's done one already. In a three or four days after you file that paperwork, you need to put in a show cause or a hearing. 
you need to put in an, an, an order for a show cause hearing to see when you put a verified claim in, it goes to the front of the docket. This is the way it's supposed to work. I'm not saying this is the way it does work. But when you put a claim in, it's supposed to go to the front of the docket. But they're not going to do that. So what you'll have to do is put in an order to show cause. And then what it comes down to, like, uh, you know, John, I want to give him his due on this verified claim. John in Texas explained to us when he first put one in, the opposing lawyer, the mother's lawyer, showed up and said, yeah, I didn't know how to answer it, so I didn't answer it. So the judge swung the gavel down and said, uh, okay, everything goes to him. Right. Because he's the only one with a claim. And that's going to happen to somebody else on this phone call, I guarantee you, if you, if you guys keep doing that. That's going to happen. Well, if that's, I mean, and claim, again, your claim is, uh, when you bring your claim in there, it's evidence of your standing. A corporation has no standing. So when you bring that verified claim in, it's showing you have standing. When I walk into the court and I stand there and when the judge walks in and they go, everybody rise, I sit. When, the, when everybody sits, I rise and I stand and I'm there with standing. I'm the only one with a claim. And basically when I go in and I talk to, you know, uh, you know, hey, I was, I was summoned here at 9 o'clock you're late, I've been waiting, and I'm not waiting any longer for this row of uh, lawyers. Unless one of them has standing, I will defer to them. And they usually turn around, all the lawyers, because you know they all sit in the front row, and they always get to go first. Uh, they'll always turn around. Every single time I've, I've done it, they turn around and go, no, nope, we defer to the guy with standing. <laughs> and, and it's because you have standing that it moves to the front of the, uh, to the, front of the line, your claim is showing your standing. Right. As you know, the first 15 or 16 points in there basically takes away all their presumptions. And it, right. and it also verifies your standing. So I, I, that's what I'm hoping that uh, will transpire in his case. But, see, here's the, here's, the, here's the monkey in the wrench on this. The court that you're in does not have the judicial authority to adjudicate a verified claim that's constitutional in nature. So that's what really halts the process right there. And the two and that CPF also cases is that I got it in. I was going to say when this, that two CPF the removal? Cases, well, no. They just, well, you know the what okay, the two CPS cases that I've got them in in California... By the way, right. I did get the verified claim into the second CPS case for, for Johnny G. Um, Good. Well, he, he said, I talked to him briefly today, and he said that uh, they're, they're doing another hearing, another uh, for, for a hearing for uh, they're trying. I guess they got rid of uh, his, his uh, what's her name, Peggy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it took me two months, but I did get rid of her through text yeah. and emails. I got rid of her. Well, they're, and, trying, and to, they're uh, trying to put another one in there now for him. Yeah, they are. They, because they don't want him entering anything into the record. They've already seen the right. paperwork, and they don't want him getting any of it in the record. So they're constantly keeping an attorney on him. But I told him this time around, make sure that the new attorney knows that he's assistance of counsel. He's there to assist him, not the other way around. If well, he's going to have a fourth him attorney. In the first place. Well, he won't. He's going to tell him to sign his client attorney agreement, and he's not going to do it. 
And then he's going right. to do the same thing that Peggy did and say, well, since the judge ordered me to be here, I don't have to sign your agreement. That's what he's going to say. Right. But either way, none of, them, none of these state bar attorneys in any state is ever going to sign that client attorney agreement. And it's only one paragraph. And essentially it says, uh, you will protect my political and constitutional rights at trial. They won't sign it. They know that they're breaking your uh, due process. It's a due process violation just when they walk inside that administrative courtroom with you. Everybody on this phone is due an Article Three court. Right. Everybody. Well, unless you go to the Supreme Court of the state or the, or the federal, you're not finding one or possibly a military tribunal. But other than that, not happening. Yeah. I mean, and in Tisha's case, she got the whole county recused. They yeah, recused I saw every, that. <laughs> 21 judges and three commissioners recused themselves from hearing the case. And you know what that case now, is, Now they're right? going retired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what that case is? That's her small claims case where she used a copy of her clerk certified record as her evidence. Yeah. They can't, they can't dispute it. All they can do is, is claim qualified immunity, and when they do that, what are we going to say? Your Honor, this has, this okay. case has nothing to do with the immunity. This is I'm suing them in their private capacity, right? Because they were acting in their private capacity when they didn't answer my challenge to jurisdiction and venue. Period. Ultra virus. Yep. Well, see, according to the uniform, was it uni the UCCJA, the Uniform EA. Child Custody Jurisdiction yeah. Enforcement Act? Yeah. Uh, section section one zero seven. I just pull it up. It says priority. If a question yes. of existence or exercise of jurisdiction under this act is raised in a child custody proceeding, the question upon request of a party must be given priority on the calendar and handled expeditiously. So right. When I went, that, when that I, reminds when I went me. In, is this Frank talking? Yes, sir. Okay. Let me tell you something, Frank. When you find the wording about uh, it's under international treaty law under the Hague Convention, are you aware that that is a Tenth Amendment violation for you in that court for them to use that law? I got to look that up. What, what do I look up for that? The Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It says, okay. It, okay. It's, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially what it says is any law that's not in the purview of the federal government is left to the states or the people. The people. Yeah. And that's who you are. You're the people. And you're saying that I'm not, my life and my property is never going to be governed by international treaty law. It's your decision. And you can tell them if they proceed forward with this, that they're violating your 10th amendment. And now you really do have a federal question to go to federal district court with. And a due process violation immediately. <clears throat> so can you do a declaratory judgment based on this, uh, uh, the new, what, what was the name? Pizwiki? Pizwiki? Yeah, that's a, that's a Daniel question right there because he knows more about that than I do. Well, I'm just one. Well, I, I I know Daniel's very familiar with the declaratory judgment. I'm just wondering if uh, if if that can be used in in conjunction with uh, with the declaratory it, it, judgment. I would say See, the that declaratory it could. judgment is just a tool. 
And it's yeah, just it's would, just one of those tools in your tool shed that you can utilize based upon the Declaratory Judgment Act or the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act of the federal uh, system. And so, you know, declaratory judgment, it was in, if you read the, the, uh, the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act in 1922, and I would encourage everyone to read it if they haven't because of the equity that that particular judgment uh, uh, has in it. It's an equitable um, act. Remedy. It, it has yeah. remedy in there listed. It, it's an, it has all equitable terms as far as the people are concerned. And if you read it, uh, your rights, status, and legal relations are um, able to be declared prior to litigation. It's one of the functions yeah. of it is to, is to be able to resolve legal issues prior to the need to actually be adversarial in court. So I would say to answer your question was absolutely yes. So it would be good to use this. And, yeah, we've got to, we've got to come up with a uh, – <laughs> might be good to add this to, to, to my declaratory judgment and estoppel. Well, look at the look at the wording on my letter to the clerk, and then you could just take it right off the page and send it to whoever whoever you want to. But I also wanted to tell Frank if he looks under the uniform court, uh, court rules of the of the North Carolina, that he's going to find the uh, the fact that he can also uh, demand arbitration, and that's another way to get it out of the family court. Well, well, yes, and and see. That's also an equitable. Everything well, see, everything that he did back in October, and since I have not seen my my uh, my children since October 26, um, Friday I put in the emergency ex parte order, and they didn't see it in time. So tomorrow morning, first thing around 8:30, I'm going to be there at the uh, courthouse, and I'm trying to get the superior court from from um, family court. And and on Friday, when they were just lying to me in family court, when I when I I, I created a, a, a change of venue uh, form, and I I put on there judicial notice and motion for emergency change of venue, um, based on everything they did uh, in in October, and also the judge did on November fifth, when she did not you know do her investigation, and and she just immediately you know um stopped, took my uh, what's that custody. Um, custody case and just, uh, you know, uh, decrease it down to eight hours of uh, visitation. And there's not even an order on in my file for that. And so I looked up the statutes. That's what I was doing last week. And I found the statute. And I also I emailed it to, uh, to Brother David. And on North Carolina General Statute, and this can help other people out who listen as well, uh, North Carolina General Statute 50-13.5, subsection D, subsection 3, is in every state. They just have it, you know, um, listed differently. But it says, it reads, a temporary order or custody which changes the living arrangements of a child or changes custody shall not be inter ex parte. And prior to service of process or notice, that means that, that, means that you, know, um, you know, like say I'm the defendant, I'm supposed to let the other party, the plaintiff, know like um, before, that her attorney, like two hours before, I filed those ex parte so they can give them notice. However, it, re it further reads, it says, unless the court finds that the child is exposed to a substantial risk of bodily injury or sexual abuse or that there is a substantial risk that the child may be abducted or removed from the state of North Carolina for the purpose of evading the jurisdiction of North Carolina courts. 
a temporary custody order that requires a law enforcement officer to take physical custody of a minor child shall be accompanied by a warrant to take physical, physical custody of a minor child as set forth in the general statutes. And so I, by being I learned that statute last week when I went there Friday, and they, said, they, they were saying, oh, you've got to give the, the plaintiff, you know, um, um, two hours notice and so forth for them to review. I said, no, not according to this statute. And they just, the, the, the administrator, or um, not, not the judge, I didn't get informed the judge, it was the, the judge's uh, secretary. She said, sir, you've got to come back on Monday and, and argue this then. Uh, she said, we're, you know, we're closing it again towards the end of the day. You've got to come back on Monday. But even when you come back on Monday, we're not going to um, uphold that. She said, you're going to have to give them two hours' notice. And I said, okay. I said, you know, uh, I'll just come back on Monday. But are you telling me that you're not gonna, you're not gonna uphold this own statute, which are your own rules? She was just furious. Well, and, that's a procedural due process violation, Frank. And based on this new information that Ed has brought to us today, I would absolutely revise uh, your notice to them uh, and and add this to it. Yes. Yes, because uh, yeah, it, it, well, Ed doesn't know this, but Ed on uh, March 11th, my uh, my daughter's teacher um, contacted me uh, and told me that she's been missing from class. I got the uh, the school record, and my oldest daughter has missed 39 39 days of the 44 school 44 school days, and I just found that out. And she's been an A student ever since she's been in school. So that shows that something's going on that I don't know of that since, since my two daughters have been with their mother. So that right there shows grounds for me to get that emergency ex parte custody in. And also, when I found out that this from the school about them missing and so forth, and uh, I notified the sheriff, and then the sheriff, he didn't do anything. I went to the police, um, and they located them uh, on Saturday, March the 13th, she told the um, police sergeant that she had taken him to Florida and she had just got back from Florida. So this coincides with that, with that statute. So tomorrow I'm looking at But that doesn't make sense either because your other daughter only missed like nine days, right? Exactly. My, my nine-year-old only missed nine days of school. So where's you the, this, you know, how come one missed 39 and the other one missed nine? That's right. That's what they're going to have to tell me. Um, that's why they need to go ahead and they need to get my children back to me. And then, you know, we need to find out. They need to let me know what, what's been going on since uh, November that all this uh, chaos has been going on. Either way, I would file that verified claim and the brief in support of the verified claim in before you file this other stuff and uh i don't know how long it's going to take them to get my internet back up but as soon as i get it back up i've got like a, a handful of documents that i need to send everybody and so since you're working with david uh david and daniel i usually send everything to so one of the two will know uh you know we'll be able to get this information that i gave everybody tonight and you've already read the case so uh i think this will be good for your business because I think they've already violated your due process by locking you up on an unlawful warrant because I'm telling you right now, and Daniel can attest to this, and, and David too for that matter, 
95% of every warrant I've ever seen is unlawful on his face, but especially no from a family no court. Yeah. Especially from a family court. Yeah, I filed these documents on this past Friday. I filed them, so I'm going to court tomorrow to get this on to find out what enforcement it is. And so what family court is trying to, they're trying to block me. They say, oh, no, you, go, you can only come through family court for this matter. <laughs> I'm trying to get to superior uh, court. Frank, will you do me a favor? Because I'm not in a place where I can write anything right now. If you'll uh, send that statute that you just read off, I want to find that same statute in Georgia. So if you'll send a copy of it to David where he can forward it to me and uh, Daniel, I, I would appreciate it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'll, I'll look up on um, the Georgia one. I'll find that one probably in a few minutes. Okay. And I'll email it to David. Yep, thanks. Yeah, but anything under USPA, anything, any, any, any statute that's under a uniform anything is international treaty law. So the Uniform Interstate Family Support Act has the same problem as the Uniform Child's, uh, Child uh, Child Custody jo uh, Jurisdiction and Enforcement Act. They're both violations of the Tenth Amendment. But you're the one, Frank, that has to bring it up. All right. That violation is, I mean, again, they're using parents' parentes uh, as their foundation for that to begin with. Well, in, in conjunction with saying that they're trying to make the laws uniform across the states, but the only way that they can do that is that if you look at it, uh, like Florida is a foreign state to North Carolina. Right. So now what it's saying is uh, it's one foreign state dealing with another foreign state, but they're going to enact the same law under international treaty law, and that is a Tenth Amendment violation against not just Frank, but also the ex-wife. But if Frank brings it up and the ex-wife and her counsel doesn't, then the ex-wife has a problem, and now the judge has a problem. It's a straight that Tenth Amendment well violation. In case as well, then, right? Yes. Same, yeah, Especially same thing. Especially since in Colorado, and, and this all happened in the Dakotas there. Yeah, well, uh, John in Texas told her that... Uh, there's no way the, the federal district court's going to hear that case because of the age of the case. He said the furthest he's ever seen a custody uh, case go is maybe six years. And she, as you well know, she's well past nine. So he said the first thing she's going to have to deal with is a 12B6 denial from the federal district court. And uh, they're not going to hear it. And the reason that they're not going to hear it for so that everybody understands, and I'm not, I'm not speaking a foreign language, the reason that the federal district court won't hear that case is because if they were to find in Angie's favor, then every lawyer over there in the woodwork would be coming out, coming back up with, you know, 9, 10, 12, 15-year-old cases. And so that's just the way the judicial system works. You know, they've got everything where it needs to be, and they're not going to change it for one person. So well, this that's, that's why. case may just do exactly that. It does. That's right. Chase may do exactly that. That's right, and that's what I'm hoping that uh, we can <laughs> actually start turning the tide. I'll tell you what, folks. If we keep getting decisions like this out of this new Supreme Court, and the Democrats don't come behind them and, and pack the court with 15 justices instead of nine, uh, I believe we're gonna uh, 
we're going to head closer and closer to the Constitution, but even if we do, that doesn't mean anything if you don't assert the rights. The first thing everybody has to do is stand up for their rights. The second thing they need to do is study the law and understand what their rights are. If everybody on this phone call would just sit down and read the Constitution word for word, it'll take you about three hours to get through the whole thing. You don't even have to do it at the same time. But if everybody would go through there, the Bill of Rights, the first nine amendments to the Constitution, if everybody would just read those and understand what their rights actually are, this world would be a better place. Hey, David. And, I, and I yield. David, if, if you, I don't know if you can send this call, uh, the recording to Angie, but uh, if, if you get it to me, I'd like to get it to her. I know she's, uh, she was moving today, um, so she's probably not on. I know she was packing and, and hauling and, yeah. and everything like that. So. No, after the, call, after the call, once I get the recording, I'll send, you, I'll, I'll send everybody the link. Well, anybody that wants it, I'll obviously send the link. But uh, I usually send out a text link for the recording afterwards once I get it. So I send it to you. I'll send it to Daniel. And, and I know Brian is uh, enjoying his Passover today. Um, so I know he's not with us. But, um, yeah, I have no problem doing that. I'll get I'd, that to I'd you. I'd like to get it to her. I've, I've known her for quite a while. She's a good lady. And, uh, you know, she, she should be able to see her child. I, I feel for her. I feel for her. I do. And uh, I just couldn't come up with a way to help her when John told me how it's actually going to play out, even if she did what I was asking her to do. Uh, you know, she's up against a very corrupt judicial system, I think, in North Dakota. Yeah. I've, I've looked at her uh, documents and, and stuff, Ed, and, I mean, yeah, she, she's just being completely blocked. I mean, they won't even well, let her file anything. No. Well, this this case should be a game changer for her, uh, uh, you know, and, and pretty much anybody who's who's uh, failed to get a redress across the board. I haven't seen uh, a successful redress of grievances in a long time. It, it does not happen very often, and and again, that that that's a right that has been you know, uh, blocked in every which way that, you know, again, there's, there's no, um, there's no justice in the justice system. There is no redress of grievances, which is why I like to stay on the equity side to begin with, because equity won't suffer, uh, you know, a, a right to, without a rem or a, a violation of a right without uh, providing a remedy. And, and, and in equity, you can do that because you're holding them to their, duty to protect and defend, which is what they took their oath to. On the law side, on the statute side, there is no protection. There's no rights either. <laughs> and you see that every day. Every single person that's dealing with the family court has ever been in a traffic court or any other type of administrative tribunal. There are no redresses of grievances. You can't even get uh, uh, you know, simple justice in any of these cases. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's uh, Daniel sent out a great paper uh, a couple of days ago, and Tisha was telling me about it. I, obviously, I don't have Internet access, but it was about dealing with CPS and family courts, and uh, it sounded that like was it was the a, one a, that, 
Daniel, was that the one that you sent out in response to the uh, Judge Judy? Yeah, I actually was sending um, a letter to one of uh, people that have invited, uh, was working with me, and I just generalized it because I was so motivated. It's called Divorce Custody CPS, The Court Advantage, Home or Away. I just, you know, and, and, I, and I'd be happy to send that to you, Dave, so you can send it out, but I, I did want to say something. I was going to talk about, the, just throw this out to you guys. It was in Benjamin Pope's 1920 work titled Legal Definitions. That there's a term in there, and this is pretty interesting. I just do it for discussion now. I, I quote this in, in one of my footnotes in that, in that article. Persons beyond fees. And this is how he defines it. This includes persons out of the state, even though not out of the United States. And he quotes Hilbert versus 3, Michigan 149. I haven't been able to find Hilbert versus 3, Michigan 149 online, and I was going to um, ask Tisha to, uh, with her law school abilities to maybe look that up. But uh, how interesting is that? And we're talking about how they're operating in maritime law. And uh, oh, you can be out of the state, even though not out of the United States, and be considered a you know, persons beyond the seas. Things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and as, we, as we all know, uh, the Uniform Commercial Code is based on maritime law. It says law of merchants, but that's just a fancy right. way of saying maritime law. Yes, it is. We have all our rights, and everything else is by contract. And I'm telling you, for everything that these guys are doing to roll over the people in court, there's a contract behind it somewhere that you're not being made a party to. But, you know, I was going to ask you about this, Ed. I was talking to you before we got on the call, and, and we were communicating by text, and I don't mind talking about this generally on this call, and I mean ultimately generally, not mention any names or participants that I might be uh, – participating with, but how does uh, this no Article Three court and this, uh, let's just dis discuss it for clarity's sake, work with a fellow who um, did not get justice, but there, there might be a, not a preponderance of evidence, but the accusation of an injured party, he goes through a non-Article Three court and gets convicted. Talk about that with somebody that was, you know, basically a de minimis offense is made into a huge offense, and he's now going to experience jail time. I'm, I'm contemplating, you know, different um, legal positionings he might have, but the one that occurs to me is the court um, was operating on statutes on, on a man. Got any comments that you want to bring out that might help everybody when we're dealing with this matter? Because this won't be the only time we come across. I've heard a You're number of well, about victimless crime, Daniel. No, no, crime. Not necessarily victimless, but let's just say that the evidence the the, the evidence did not demonstrate a um, a serious offense, and yet uh, you know basically um, he didn't get the complete uh, charges that could have been. But they used they basically took the one offense and uh, and expanded it to um, battery as well as disorderly conduct as well as um, uh, obstruction of justice, and just basically you know. Um, you know, six-month sentence, and he didn't testify, but the other parties did. So you know, we're dealing with the same issue, that the court is not an Article III court. He wasn't afforded the due process rights. There was definitely not exculpatory evidence. You can see clear, concise 
understanding that the uh, judicial figure was biased in the case uh, and, and denied certain instructions to the jury on the jury instructions. And I'm just, uh, this is the first time, and this is post-judgment, you know, one, one minute to midnight. He says, is there anything that can be done? And so I'm just pulling out my hair trying to figure out, does this guy have any remedy of relief uh, to, um, to a jail cell? And he's never, ever challenged jurisdiction any along the way, just caved right into all those issues that we would have said from the very get-go. Well, uh, you said something about the cop getting caught in the lie. Tell me more about, well, about not that. The co- not the cop. The uh, the witnesses in the uh, I read the entire 400 um, uh, page transcript. The witnesses were inconsistent with their testimony on the night of the supposed incident uh, amongst each other. The state witnesses they're all they're somebody's perjured. The actual main so-called victim perjured his testimony compared to what was witnessed, uh, what was stated in the this night of the so-called event. Um, and uh, and then it was you a state actor. No, it wasn't a state actor. No, it wasn't a state actor. Okay. Was was it a twelve? It was an alleged, an alleged domestic um, uh, situation. Okay. Yeah, so it was an alleged domestic situation. But my my point in all that is sometimes we get these really hard cases, and I've heard it said a few times, and I'm addressing it in in this public forum, not because uh, I because I think it would help everybody. What does it matter? If you're in the wrong court with foreign agents operating under the law merchant using the state statutes, does this does not the man even in that say in that in that condition does he not have the right to the procedural due process of a properly um, a proper judicial forum? So what does it matter yeah, if there's a victim? Okay, I mean, what, why would it say? Why would it make a difference? Well, there's a victim. Um, if there's a victim involved, he's screwed. I don't I don't understand that. So I want to address that in front of the. Uh, the group well, no, and learn. The, the, you're saying that the the you know uh, there were you know he was in the wrong venue and and was uh, not afforded his rights as a man in the venue because he was basically convicted under a statutory color of law right. situation. Right. right. He, again, uh, there's a jurisdictional challenge as always where I would go first. Right, uh, and that's what my exactly so I happen to be. It happened to be the equation I was working on in the time your call happened, Dave. So please forgive me for being um, selfish and personal right now. I don't know how to do that. So this is why I have this time to bring these issues up. That's great that you did. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I was. <laughs> I was waiting. I know that, that, that Ed is over there, and he's. I smell the smoke from Georgia even coming this way. I'm just curious <laughs> what your response was, Ed. Well, was it a panel of 12? How many jurors? Yeah, there was 12. All right. So as we all know, the law is that the, uh, the, the trial by jury, in a trial by jury, the, the jurors uh, decide the facts and the law. Yeah, no, they were they were not allowed to. I actually have evidence from the record. They were denied access to the law, and they were actually clearly instructed that yeah, court would determine the law, and they were going to define the facts. But I also have yep. clear evidence from the record that shows they were actually kept from certain facts in the jural instructions. Literally, were the the judge had made up her mind that he was guilty, got it right on the uh, the the, the uh, transcript and was not going to allow the jury to be instructed 
on elements that could tend to sway the jury to consider the reasonable doubt of self-defense in the man's protection of his castle. I mean, that's clear on the record. Was it a uh, unanimous decision? Yes, yeah, 12 unanimous decision, yes. Now, of course, if it was hung, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be, it was an unanimous well, decision. Well, some states have actually passed a statute that says they don't, it get, uh, 10 out of 12 is enough. Yeah, this was a, so yeah, it was an unanimous decision. What state? How quickly, how, do you know how quickly they came back? It's it was, was quite some time. How long were they in? But but they that? but they were there's a there's, it was it was hours um, deliberating. But there's some other issues too. They were they were denied the transcripts. They were able to see them during the hearing to follow along with the transcript. But the but the uh, judicial figure denied them having the hard copy transcript to take back into the jury deliberation room to go through the the transcript. That was. Um, uh, that's clear on the record, and they were also well, that's where the facts were presented. That's where the facts were presented. So how could they be held without it? Or, they were they were, only, they were only allowed to go by memory. Um, they were not allowed to have the actual transcript. That's clear by the uh, that's clear by the uh, transcript of the proceeding. And then the other thing I found that was really interesting was that the uh, the you know you know you know what I say when I say jury instructions. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. I've, I've got this is for the listening audience. This is the instructions that the judge gives the jury, where he tells them, by you know, things like, "Well, I'm the one to determine the law. You're supposed to determine the facts." And then, but then, in the jury instructions, the uh, the the the, uh, the judge actually has the ability, or um, uh, certain things that the judge can say could give the weight that they they need to look they need to look at these elements. And by denying those elements to the jury, the only thing that the jury was allowed to do was um, basically find the man, man guilty as the, by, by the judge's standards. So, in other words, well, here's the point: if I had a squabble, were they, if I had a squabble, huh? Were they pro, were they pro se, or did the defense have an attorney? Uh, believe it or not, the defense had an attorney. Yeah, wow. he's he's done. He's done. Unaffected uh, yeah. counsel? Well, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, there's a lot of issues. And, you know, so jurisdiction can be challenged at any time. And so, you know, he, he definitely, you could see where, you could see really clearly that the, uh, pro, the attorney was playing the dog and pony show, just being the management agent for the uh, state's claim, not really at all uh, defending this man's, um, uh, anything of this man's uh, rights. And, um, Although doing a good job pretending or portraying uh, himself was, to was it a public really defender or was it a private attorney? Uh, somebody uh, hired? Hired, hired, hired counsel. So anyway, just kind of just kind of spinning some spinning some thoughts around because I've been working long and hard. Um, he's a friend of mine's friend and uh, don't know him personally, but I've spent uh, many 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 hours this week um, pouring over this. And looking for his um, his uh, positionings right now, and he's and I'm just uh, you know really like to offer well, some help. Adjudicated? Has, he, has he appealed yet? Yes, and um, and 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 apparently they they denied his appeal, but I haven't seen the denial. And the attorneys appealed the uh, the matter based upon them not allowing the exculpatory of, of the. Uh, basically, they denied the jury was denied hearing the self defense 
jury instructions. And that was the, the, the appellate uh, decision that, that they, they made. The judge denied giving that in the jury instructions. So basically the jury was, um, was, was, uh, was allowed to hear only the law as it was dictated by the judge's decision of his innocence or guilt. Self-defense was a uh, was a fact in the case that should have been something that they well, were. It's, that it's, they it's should not have a taken fact. The, it's not a fact because he never testified. It's they, not a they, fact they, in the case, David. Right. Okay. It's not a fact, but it would be a it, it would be a jury instruction that would could raise a reasonable doubt. So yes. if, an, if a party could, could conclude that there was a reasonable doubt that the altercation was one of self-defense and there was... So anyway, without going into the whole case, which is none of my business to portray because somebody might know the situation or know the parties, I'm going to keep my information private. Um, sure, but sure. Uh, but um, I'm just, I'm just curious how... How this uh, this whole thing um, fares out in your minds when we're all talking? Well, it's not an Article Three court, and they're in improper venues. There's this UFO, this unidentified foreign organization, unregistered foreign agents. But if somebody was hurt, they have all the right to do that in our state. I just don't understand those two things together, and they don't they don't really lock in my mind. And uh, and I'm participating right along there with you, and I've heard it so many times, and I and I'm not trying to say that it's wrong. I just don't I don't comprehend it. You said you Can read I the jump? transcripts. Did they bring? Yeah, hold on one second, Chad. Did did the defense attorney bring this up during trial? N- no. The transcripts. Did he even say that it? You know, did he make that defense? No, that's my point. The defense attorney was really um, was really measly. Yeah. He was. He just. He wasn't really uh, a defense attorney in in my estimation. Um, so you know he didn't. There was perjury. He didn't. Uh, he didn't uh, examine the perjury uh, of um, within the the witnesses' statements. You know, clear discrepancy between the statements to the police on the night of the event and the statements out on the witness stand. And then clear discrepancy between the witnesses themselves about the events when they happened and how they happened and if they happened. And so all this um, on the record. Uh, the jury came back with a unanimous uh, finding of guilt. One of the major reasons is is because these the, these potential defenses uh, that men would have were never even allowed to be raised in the jury's mind. They were they were the exculpatory defenses. They're not not, not exculpatory evidence per se. And maybe I'm wrong because this is a part of the arrangement that I'm very unfamiliar with. When you're dealing with the jury trial that already that already occurred, I can't say that I've been down this road before, so that's why I brought it up tonight. Anything yeah, match anything you've ever been involved with, Ed or Dave or anybody else on the call? Because this is uh, definitely I, a puzzle for me. Can I bring something yeah. up? Uh, yes, which, ahead, John. Um, Okay, the uh, I found this out in a case I was helping my friend with. The court gives the jury, at least in Minnesota, maybe it's different in other states, they give the jury a list of things that the state has to prove. Basically, it's like, here's what we need to prove. If we do this, they're guilty. And so that's what they focus on, which when they don't supply that, 
this goes back to what Ed was saying, which I think is, you know, just awesome. It's like if they don't tell you that they're giving the jury this of the burden of proof, then, you know, they're, they're not giving you due process. But they give the jury a list of what the state needs to prove to be found guilty. Yes, Chad, I would say I've seen that happen, and I've seen that happen here in, or in Montana as well. Um, that happens. They do give you, yeah, they do give you a. Uh, they do give you the instructions. The one thing um, I know, in, like in Montana, when I when I was going through, it's not the instructions because my friend never got that. They they they, they have the jury instructions. But then they give the jury the burden of proof, and my friend never got that. You're talking about saying they, they gave them a list of the elements to prove. Yeah. If it yep. meets this, 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 and this, then they're guilty. Yep. It was what the state had to prove to show that there was guilt. And we, we she never got that. Hmm. In this case, they, In this case, they did. But what they didn't get was the jury instructions that would tend to let the jury's minds gravitate towards. In other words, if, if there was the potentiality for self-defense, then you find a reasonable doubt that he would be guilty of the state's charges. But if you weren't allowed to consider self-defense because it wasn't in your jury instructions, you had to just go by what the judge told you. Right. And this is that where the, the defense attorney uh, w was negligent, not even bringing that up. Well, they brought it up on appeal, um, and and uh, and and it, and it was uh, it was interestingly denied. But then, what I'm getting at with all of that is, in all of these matters, the mechanism of this intrusion of this a foreign, unregistered, potentially unregistered foreign agent or somebody acting cloaked in a capacity that wasn't the authority that had anything to do with the people. It has nothing to do with the people. Yeah. It's not the Colorable. people's court. It's the corporate courts. And, and, uh, and so, so the question is, is um, how, could that, uh, how could that knowledge affect somebody after the fact? And it's a conundrum. I, I understand this. why I'm raising it in this, in this forum tonight. Daniel, I tell you I'm what here. I would do. I would. I tell you what I would do if it was me. The first thing I would do is call the Secretary of State and see if his Foreign Agent Registration Act is on file. You, you should all be. You should also be able to find that out from the clerk of the court. That judges Foreign Agent Registration Act, which is mandatory. If it's not on there, now, now you've got something. But I, I tell you, I tell you the two things that I see why this case is never going to be handled. I've, I've given you guys the case of Carlson v. Carlson, which essentially says, if you're if you have the benefit of counsel at trial, and you your the decision goes against you, and you go to appeal. Every one of your due process rights could have been violated, but because you had the benefit of counsel, the appeals court won't even look at it. 
They won't even take it into consideration. And then it comes down to the facts of the case. So I think the best thing you could do instead of arguing improper venue is argue that the judge didn't have the authority to make the ruling or to, or to uh, even though the judge didn't make the ruling, the judge didn't have the authority to, to sit over the case because she was actually a foreign agent if she didn't have the Foreign Agent Registration Act uh, 1938 as amended form filed with the Secretary of State. And while you're so checking... So a jurisdictional challenge. Yes. And while you're checking, also see with the Secretary of State or the clerk of the court if the judge in the case had an anti-bribery statement on file. There's a number for it, but I don't, I don't know what it is. The second yeah. thing I would do... The second thing I would do is immediately file a state bar complaint against that attorney for ineffective assistance of counsel. And then all those points that you brought up, Daniel, about uh, the judge violating the guy's due process from the bench, uh, instructing the jury that they could only do certain things, and then uh, no objections from the counsel. There's a lot of different things you can use there. But I would file a state bar complaint against the, the attorney that he had, that he had uh, hired for ineffective assistance to counsel. How long uh, did they give him? How long did the judge give him for six the lockup? Six months um, total, three months and three months consecutive, and then 10 days, six months, 10 days. It would be six okay. months because 10 months went concurrent. Well... Uh, the guy needs to go into jail with a non-statutory writ of habeas corpus as well, already ready to go. Because I think it's too late. I think they're going to come get him, but it would be nice if he already had a uh, non-statutory writ of habeas corpus written up. He's probably going to have to serve it from jail. And all he's got to do is hand it to one of the jailers and say, please get this to the court. Have you ever seen a non-statutory writ of habeas corpus do anything for anybody? And please don't uh, be upset I put you on the spot. Well, uh, I have, but it's only because I know a lot of people. And my mentor, uh, William Henshaw, uh, Bill, I call him Bill, but his name is William Henshaw. Uh, he served one in South Carolina after being locked up for six months without an arraignment. And they pulled him out, and they said uh, the charge was unlicensed practice of law. And Bill walked in there and said, well, y'all got a real problem. And the judge said, well, what do you mean? And uh, you're the one with the problem. He, Bill said, no, you're the one with the problem. And the judge said, well, how do you figure? Bill said, because I never practiced the law. I got it right the first time. And, you know, he said it was quiet for about three minutes while they tried to figure out how they were going to get around that answer. So, and, and uh, currently he has a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the state of North Carol or South Carolina in that case. So yes, the answer is yes, I have seen, I have seen it. The reason you want to make it non-statutory 
is uh, so that the state can't come back and use statutes against him. Uh, but if he's got enough, if you got enough things that you found on the record that were inconsistent with the application of law, then I think you should be able to use that. And I, the first one I would go with is the uh, foreign agent. You know, the judge was a foreign agent, and and uh, the guy thought he was in an Article Three court. What kind of court was it, Daniel? Was it a superior court or a district court? It was at the circuit level. It was court of record at the circuit level. Yeah. The, the, well, I mean, you, the real question you should be asking me is, under those same set of circumstances, have I ever seen anybody uh, get freed or get out of it? And I'm going to say no. you got three main things going against you. One is, apparently, he harmed another person. So the court automatically has jurisdiction, if that's the case. Number two, he had a trial by jury. And no matter what the judge instructs them, the way the law reads is the jury decides the facts and the law. No matter what the judge said not for them not to do, or limited whatever. Number three, he had assistance of counsel. So even if every one of his due process violations were, were uh, violated during trial, the appeal court is not going to take a look at it. They're just going to judge the uh, the law, the the facts. You know, the facts in the law. They're not going to judge the uh, facts. They're just looking for inconsistencies in the law. And those judges know what they're doing. Ed, if they if they were in, I mean, it still could have been the wrong venue in the wrong jurisdiction, even if there was a victim uh, per se. Um, right, but he gave up jurisdiction when he hired an attorney. Correct, I agree with that. But again, he, if if that was done unknowingly, he could still challenge that jurisdiction. He could, but again, nobody, nobody, most people don't have a clue that you know if you hire an attorney, you're 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 forfeiting jurisdiction into the court uh, because the 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 attorney is an officer of the court. But if they bring it in the wrong venue and they're still operating under color of law and not a uh, Article Three judicial court, um, there, there's still a jurisdictional challenge that can be made. Yeah, as but to I, the venue, I as to the venue, I know it's going to be hard. It's not going to be an easy thing. You know, if it was 16 years, maybe, but six right. months. They're not gonna. They're nobody's gonna do anything. I mean, I'm just being honest. Well, they're, they're he gonna he's anything. gonna be there in the home before they even bring it up anywhere. Right. That's well, right. he's not incarcerated right now. He's still out on bond, and um, that's the point I was driving at. So we're not we're not behind bars at this moment in time. So uh, this friend of mine said this guy's a really good guy and. He's, you know, looking for things, and I've been pouring over this, saying, "Where's, where's this? What's that?" And, you know, I do understand these things that we're talking about tonight, and, um, you know, understand it pretty well. And I'm with you, Ed. I, I'm, I've been looking over this, finding out if they made any mistakes within their realm, and the only one I can see they, they've sort of raised on appeal, uh, but it was never made. There was never any evidence. In the case, and the problem with this thing is that the only evidence in the case 
even if it's um, uh, failing, was against him. So, you know, because he never testified, there was no nothing contrary to the evidence on the record. And so, the I mean, it's really, it's really good. Huh? And the, and the defense never, uh, the defense attorney never, never stated a defense like self-defense, which would have made it, uh, would, have, would have got it on the record in the first place. Man's right to defend his castle, self-defense, the one who is actually disorderly, the one that raised the issue, was allegedly domestic violence, there was alcohol involved. Uh, anyway, it was a pretty rough situation. Um, so, you know, what, what I see, you know, the skinny of it is that the, um, an offshore corporation or as Ed calls it, insular corporation is financially benefiting from, um, from a family dispute and an internal trauma that really was an ecclesiastical affair, but they took it and are making money and running on it. And there's a man that will go to a jail, you know, into a jail once again, benefiting that uh, state of UFO unidentified foreign organization, and, um, and they've taken managed, managing our affairs from cradle to grave, and we have not had a court, truly a impaneled court of the people, although it, had, it was a charade. It appeared as such because there was 12 persons there sitting there um, neutered to weigh these uh, facts as they were told by this un, un, unincorporated foreign organization, or at least an undisclosed foreign organization's um, judge, what the law was, and they were to determine the facts. So at the end of the day, it's, it certainly is a stacked deck. Yeah. Well, yes, let me yeah. ask. Let me just throw one more question at you, Daniel. When was the arraignment? What was the date of the arraignment? I, I don't have the date of the arraignment, but it would have been somewhere around 2018. Okay. So what I just uh, told the group about about uh, this new decision, uh, I you know, listen very carefully. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, why so I asked my question. By the way, when I said is it retroactive? Yeah, uh, even if it was though, when when he took when he hired counsel, he basically gave away all his rights. And if the group learns anything, they they need to know that. If you hire yeah. an attorney, you're waiving your rights. It's yes, as simple as that. So. I'm just uh, I'm just saying, Daniel. I mean, uh, I know your heart's in the right place, but no need in wasting your time because they're never going to pick this case up. Even, even the non-statutory writ of habeas corpus. I mean, you kind of had to wake me up. He has the absolute right to file it, but it's never going to get heard. They're going to see he had counsel, and they're going to they're just going to ignore it. I they're going to say he had the benefit of counsel. Right. I unless was laughing. Unless that it was ineffective. That's why I would, right, that's why I would file the state bar complaint, so at least he can keep that option alive. I, w I was laughing when he decided not to testify. Of course, they all wanted him to take the stand, and he decided not to testify. And the, and the way the, uh, the, the administrative, the ALJ, uh, what the way they described it was he waived his right to testify. He, he waived his right to testify. I thought it's kind of interesting. Instead of um, um, uh, um, you know utilizing his right not to testify against himself, he waived his right to testify. I just kind of laugh at reading this whole transcript. Yeah. 
Yeah, he waived his right to testify. Yeah, they're trained. They're trained to keep their client off the stand no matter what in most cases. And, uh, you know, and again, in a case like this where it may have made a difference, uh, that's why I would say in the first place that his, that his counsel was ineffective. Um, in the first, you know, when you go in there and he goes, I guarantee you his defense attorney said, no, you don't want to testify and probably talked him out of testifying altogether. Not that he would have testified against himself. Uh, he was afraid of the cross-examination, maybe. I mean, but, if you think uh, about it, Daniel, saying that he waived his right to testify is the same thing as saying that he invoked his right to uh, to plead defense. Remain silent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I know. It's just it's just funny. It's just been funny how how it was oh, it was put in the reverse. I just yeah. I laughed at that. I looked at it and says, "Oh, you mean he invoked his right to not testify against himself? No, he waived his right to testify." <laughs> I was got you waiving. At least it would have made the transcript. I know. And my, my friends told me. He said, "Daniel, I learned this from you 25, 30 years ago. If someone calls you a name and you sit there and go silent in front of a crowd of people." Well, whose fault is it if everyone thinks you are what that name was? You know, yeah. I mean, there, there's a time when you don't answer a fool according to his folly, but when your reputation's on the line and someone's making an accusation against you and you're in a public forum like that, you know, if you don't say no, and this is a good thing for, the, for the, everybody to hear, you know, there's a, there's a time to speak and there's a time not to speak. But someone's, you know, saying, you know, you, uh, you, know, you murdered my brother Joe, and you sit there silent, don't say anything, say, well, they got to prove this. Well, I mean, there's a time. There's time to say I did. No, I did not. And that you know, there's a time to speak and there's time not to speak. I would say if someone says you murdered somebody, I would definitely say, "Well, you me." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I Can mean, I say something. Sure. Sure. <clears throat> I've got uh, three points. This is uh, Jeremy out in California here, um, and these are just same things for some consideration. Um, number one, somebody mentioned about the BNMC and so forth. Well, the question isn't so much jurisdiction as a question of form. Where exactly is this whole thing taking place? It's in the state of whatever state this is being taken place is. And uh, you need to find the definition of where that state is, show the legal definition of where that is, not just look on a map, because uh, the best that you can come up with is the states have actually been donated to the federal uh, lands and or they're in Washington DC so the question is where this forum is not the jurisdiction number two uh, it's a question of accounting um, you know I would I would request uh, a request for all the accounting that's actually involved in this case um, and I know in I've, I've seen the actual statutes in California and in Illinois where um, they specifically state that a warrant is a check and it's to be turned into the um, uh, county auditor and auditor turns into the treasurer and the treasurer pays it out. Those warrants are being paid on. So who's getting that money? And when you follow the trail of all this, who's getting all that money and everything, it really should be the one who's the grieved party. If there's a, is a, a criminal trespass, is it against the state or is it against this other person? And if it's against this other person, then they need to be um, properly uh, indemnified. And that money needs to go to all of them. So whether he goes to jail or not, 
but that's another part of the accounting too. Who's paying for all that jail? And that goes ties into the social security number and everything that you need to see all the accounting that's going off of it. So the other thing is notice of mistake. Notice of mistake of a mistaken identity of who's paying for this. Why is my body paying for this? You know, the common law says that I can't, I don't have to pay with my body. You can take all my assets, but you can't force it against my, or take it out of my body. And, you know, you guys already know all the law and everything that goes back in between the Treaty of Paris and everything else. So those that's, are just a just cross, quick. that's a cross. Um, uh, and again, like when you go into equity or right of subrogate, uh, yeah, subrogation, um, when you, you know, you're looking at that accounting. And again, this is, I know uh, people talk about bid bonds and the surety bond, you know, all these uh, court bonds that are put out there, including the warrant. Um, you know, when they, when the state, when, when, when it's always the state versus, and that's why all crimes are commercial. You're not, de- you're dealing with uh, accounting exactly what you're talking about. The victim, if there was a victim, uh, we'll never see any of it. Nothing. So the, the victim is always the state. Always in in their courts, it's the it's the commercial yeah, aspect actually, of this. When when you draw out the counting on it and the fact and showing who's actually being paid uh, for that, uh, then you raise the question. The next question to follow up on that is, well, why are they getting paid? What authority do they have <laughs> to receive the money? They don't. That money should go to the victim, and he can make a claim against that. And the, even the defendant in this case could even make a claim for that as well, and especially because they already stole his body. They put out a warrant for him, and they stole his body instead, even, and they double-dipped because they went out and got paid on it as well. And there's no law for that. Hey, uh, David, will you send this uh – I'm sorry. I think he said his name was Jeremiah, but the guy in California. Would you Jeremy. Send, yeah, Jeremy. Would you send him my uh, letter of rogatory that I just sent you recently? Sure. sure. Letter of rogatory for relief. And uh, uh, just so you know, Jeremy, I'm going to change the name of it to uh, Demand for Case Accounting. But it's something that you can definitely file into uh, any cases you have down there, and I think you'll find it very enlightening. Go ahead and send him the uh, the uh, Gene Keating transcript that I sent with it, if you would, David. Thank you. Yeah, I will. I have to. Uh, I got to get access to my computer right now. It's uh, uh, it'll 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 be another day or two, but I'll get it to you, Jeremy. I'll follow up with you on that, and thank you very much, Ed. Yes, sir. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, you brought up some excellent points there. Uh, one other thing that Jeremy gave me the idea, Daniel, is uh, you could always challenge that, uh, I don't know, use something like an affidavit of illegality, file it into his case, and say that the state never proved they were a state, and then put in a copy of the S-bands and invite them to uh, refute it. Or that, he, or that the defendant is party to the statutes and codes. That's right. Where, if it's again, not a, it, it, that's the, yeah, that's the point. If it's not a state, then how can they enforce state statutes against him? Hmm. Daniel, I just sent you two books as well. One of them was, uh, one of them was called uh, "All Cr- When All Crimes Are Commercial," which goes right along the lines of what Jeremy just brought up. 
Well, I got three days yeah. to work on it. I've been told, so thank you. Yeah, and I also sent you one. I believe it's called uh, Out to Sea. Is the other one? I, I've read that. It has the letter C on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I've read that. Past. Yeah, I've read that before. I do agree with you. It's been a while though. This is an unusual matter, but you know we're here, and and uh, you know we're we're trying to do uh, you know the the father's work here and. I appreciate you guys. In fact, I appreciate everybody in this call, Chad and Jeremy and Frank and everybody that's on this call, even unnamed. Um, good to know there are good people out there. Absolutely. Does anybody else have a uh, legal question while we're all here? <laughs> I was just going to bring that up. we still got a bunch of folks on the call. We're running uh, a little bit past the, the time, but I, uh, I wanted to bring that up, but I didn't want to just cut it off because uh, – there's a bunch of folks on here. In case there's any other questions or comments, uh, now would be a good time to bring them up. So if you if you got them, uh, bring bring up your questions. <laughs> I'd I'd just like to ask for anybody that would keep me in their prayers. I got a, a court hearing for summary judgment on Tuesday morning, uh, and I'm you know kind of. Kind of winging it on my own thing, but just I, I appreciate support and uh, everything else, and and all of you guys, what you do. I mean, it's uh, just uh, immeasurable to me on 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 your sharing and all that. So I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Did, I, I want to ask: Did you follow bill of particulars into that case? I haven't had I, I I've never seen your document. Really? Well, he's been around long I'll get, enough. I'll, guys. I'll, I'll I mean, get all those over to you, Chad. Yeah, I'll yeah. get all those to you. Yeah, okay. I mean, I've I've heard him on several calls, and and uh, he's he's one of the he, to me he's one of the mainstays of the group. I mean, he's. He's soaking this information. Chad, Chad's up. been around. <laughs> Chad, Chad, I think you were on my first podcast and have been uh, almost everyone since. When you can make it, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I probably have. I'm, I'm, I'm no expert. I mean, but you know, I, I, I do have information I can share, and you know, whatever happens with this, it's a debt case, um, and I'll, I'll gladly uh, share what I did and w- whether it's good or bad for me. Um, because I think everybody can learn from that, and I, I think that's, you know, what these calls are all about. Daniel. Absolutely. Daniel, does he does he have my two letters, one to the uh, opposing counsel and one to the judge about the money issue? Yes, that I know I gave you, right, Chad? You have that? I, I have John's uh, money. Okay, or, so there's a, there's a letter to the ALJ. And there's a letter to I, I the uh, opposing counsel. I, I I don't have those things. I have John's uh, letter from uh, you know basically the the judicial notice or notice to the administrative judge about money. Right. Did you what send about that the to I don't uh, even yeah. think I have that one. Yeah, I don't yeah, think I have it either. I think they're the, thinking we have that. So I don't have it. There's, there's one to the opposing counsel and there's one to the administrative law judge. Each one of them gets a letter. Uh, essentially, yeah, what the letter says. 
yeah. Essentially what the letter says is, hey, uh, you've made me party to some contract through the UCC. Uh, I, I can't, by definition, be a party under the UCC definition. Uh, I, I don't agree with your definition of money, okay, because this is for a debt judgment, I guess. So what you're saying is is that uh, under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1, I'm not waiving my right, uh, and if you do charge me money, uh, what you define as money, then you can't collect it because I never waived my right under 1.10.1 to, uh, to make anything. No state can make anything but gold and silver in payment of debt. And since they took it out of circulation and they've only uh, got left with Federal Reserve notes, that is a political decision. And you're not waiving your right under 110.1 to pay them in anything other than gold and silver, which means they can't collect the judgment. Yeah, I, I got uh, a lot of, of that in there. I mean, it, it's it's not your stuff. Um you know, I, I've I've been looking at the the money thing for quite a while, uh, but yeah, it's it, it's very similar. But I I don't have your stuff. I'd love to see it. Um, well, what makes mine different? And if you shoot that over to me tonight, I can forward that to him tonight. No internet. Yeah, I don't have internet. Oh yeah. What? When is don't you case? have a hot spot on your phone? Uh, well, see, that's the thing. The hotspot works with the Wi-Fi, and the whole thing is down. I mean, the whole the whole county is down on the internet right now. Hmm. It's okay. I don't have any Wi-Fi. Know, I'm, like like I said, I I appreciate all you guys more more than I say, and you know, it's like I'm I, I was kind of pushed into to this, and I'm a. Uh, I'm I'm doing my own thing, and if I I I make it, I don't. And if I uh, you know come out good, great. You know we can all learn from it. Um, I'm, what, I'm not opposed kind of help. What but, day? What day is your case, Chad? Um, Tuesday. Couple of days. Okay. Okay. So I'll tell you what I can do. If I've got uh, this argument where I've sent these two letters uh, to someone else, I may possibly can use my iPhone to shoot you a copy of the email that I sent to someone else. So what I want you to do, if I do do that, David, is just download the items. And, and then, then forward write, the items. Yeah, forward, hit forward the items to him without giving up the information on the whoever I sent it to. So, yeah, let's yeah, do it sure. that way. When I get off the phone, I'll try to find those two letters and so he can... You don't you you don't even have to file them, but at this late date, Chad, I would suggest that you file them both into the record and let them know that you've updated the record to reflect that if they try to charge you anything but gold and silver, uh, that you're going to hold them to their their. Uh, see, they can't make a ruling for you to pay anything in Federal Reserve notes once you file these in. I, if they I've, do, I've, I've yeah, basically if, done that, Ed. Um, you know, I, I've told them it's uh, it's it's a legislative question on the value of money, and uh, you know, I've I've put quite a bit into it. Um, 
I can't see everything from my computer, uh, what's filed. I need to go to the courthouse to look. Uh, but one thing I did notice, I filed a, a, a what was it, a, equitable estoppel uh, on what the attorney filed um, and, and a bunch of other things. And all that shows on the record is my notice of uh, uh, an affidavit of proof, basically. Right. Hey, I dropped off there for a minute. I had to call back in. Uh, so I, I don't know what uh, Chad just said, but I think he's saying that he's already made the arguments and they're still trying to move forward with the with the case. Have you binded their oath to the uh, the fact that uh, Federal Reserve notes are a political decision and that you're no. not uh, accepting to pay in that decision? Have you done that? I... I, I, I I have not accepted their oath. Um, I have told them, I've given them notice uh, that they have no jurisdiction to uh, basically tell me I have to pay in anything. Um, and I've laid out, uh, you know, Article uh, 1, Section 10, and uh, I forget what the public law is, you know, where it says, okay, pretty much it's, you can only pay in gold or silver, but then public law says you can't pay in gold or silver. Well, it, the reason you can't pay in gold and silver is because the government took it out of circulation. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the what public raises law. the political question of money. So yeah. your, argument, yeah. your argument then, Chad, is as soon as you bring something into circulation that I can agree to pay it in, something with some kind of assured value, then I'll be happy to pay it. You could give them a promissory note and tell them you'll be happy to pay it as soon as they bring gold or silver back into circulation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and honestly, I'm I'm prepared to do that. You know, I've I've even I've put in. You know that my. Uh, you know they always say the promissory note. Oh well, it's been lost, and it's like no, it hasn't. It's it's been cashed in for for value, and uh, I've put that in. For the record, also, it's you know, uh, no, bring bring the note forward. I mean, you're supposed to get that promissory note backward. That's your promise. Once the promise is paid, you're supposed to get that back. And if they can't bring back yeah. the original, uh, then they got an issue. Then it's supposed to be discharged. Yeah. Under UCC, it would be. Because the promissory note is currency within itself at face value. Yeah. As long as as long as they run it through the Federal Reserve, then it, it, it it's paid for the uh it, it's accord and satisfaction. Right. Yeah. In essence, if they found against you, Chad, and you made the argument that uh you're not gonna pay your debts in anything but gold and silver coin. Then what they would be doing is, uh, like John likes to say, they would be punishing you for exercising your rights, and they can't yeah. do that. They can't do that. No. If 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 they it's it's a summary judgment hearing uh, because they're they're claiming I didn't answer when I did basically a demur. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I got a few things going with them. And uh, honestly, a lot of this is, like, I mean, m money's not that important to me because I understand what it is. It's, it's 
not much of anything. I mean, I know you can use it in your daily life, but um, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of stuff just to see what works, what doesn't, and uh, I've done a lot of that and, you know, had some good results. Uh, so, you know, a, a lot of this is experiment for me. Um, that's my belief. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you said you, you put in a demur. You know what they interpret that demur being the definition of what it is. Is you're admitting, says, hey, yeah, they're right to something. I don't know what your demur is on everything, and that's why they're getting summary judgment because, like, hey, you just admitted. So we want to get the summary judgment on that. So that's when you got to be extremely careful about what you're actually doing a demur for. And <laughs> in my opinion. There's, there's no reason I, I, to put in a. I I agree, but I mean, so I, I'm admitting to what? Exactly, that's what I'm asking. I don't know. I didn't see a demur. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm admitting that basically I, I I put in you know the note, but the note pays paid up front for everything. Yeah, so you're using like HJR one ninety two public law yeah, seventy three ten. Yeah. Yeah, obligations of the United States and, uh, you know, modern money mechanics, uh, you know. Look, do it this way. If the summary judgment comes down against you on Tuesday, then you just say to the judge, Your, Your Honor, I'd be happy to pay that. What would you like me to pay it in? No, 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 no. You say, you say what are you required to tell me to pay it in? Not what yeah, would you right. like, what but ordering, what would you require? What were you to pay it in, yeah. Yeah, but he could he could pay it in anything. He could pay it in jelly beans. I, yeah, I, no, I, I got it forward. They, that's exactly what they say. They'll say whatever's of value, whatever's of equal value. And just because I word the question wrong. I, I actually copy. worded it just like you just did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I got an organic organic mill. 11 miles east of me, and I'm going to go out and buy a bag of wheat berries and send it to them. <laughs> what is that yeah, you, thing that is being required? <laughs> what is that thing is what I've, the distinction that I have um, been um, instructed and in helping people. Or it's not. Or, I would just say that's right, thing. You don't want to define it. You don't even want to call it money. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What uh, is that thing you require me or what are you wanting me to pay in? And again, if they ask you to pay, again, there is no way to pay because uh, you cannot pay a debt with a debt and a Federal Reserve note is a debt note. It is a promissory note. So you can't pay it. <laughs> that discharges the debt, but it does again, that's it can't be required by law or by definition. Okay. Yeah. I just had a great idea. I just had a great idea. Send in the bill of particulars. Let him file it into the case tomorrow. Okay? File it into your case. You're going to see in the bill of particulars, you're going to find a law down towards the bottom called Coffin versus U.S., which essentially says that they can't move the case forward until those questions have been answered on the record. These are your questions regarding nature and cause of the proceedings against you. File it into the case anyway, even if you don't think it'll do any good, because you're challenging the jurisdiction and venue which they have to prove on the record before they can uh, move move forward in the case. So the hey, Chad, judgment, didn't you put in didn't you put in the uh, jurisdictional uh, inquiry and the uh, and the uh, and your judicial notice? 
I, I, I didn't, David. Um, you know, like I said, I was talking to, you know, the other other party also and um yep, yep, yep. I, Robert. Yep. 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 I and I was just, you know, it's like this is my deal. I'm gonna go yep. where I think I should and uh I I I didn't know all the other stuff good enough. Um so that that's why I did that. And and it's nothing against anybody else's sure. stuff. Sure, no, I get it. Yeah. Well, no, because if anything, you're the one that's got to answer any questions. So exactly. better to go with what you know, for sure. Exactly what you just stated there. That was my reason. Because I agree with, I mean, both your stuff and Robert's, you know. Um, but I, I, I got to be able to talk for it when I'm in front of the judge. Right. No, you got to use what's yours. Again, it's it's hard to defend something when when you, when you don't know enough about it that way, or yeah. use materials that are you know that you're unfamiliar with. But but I'd love if 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 I could get the bill of particulars, uh, you know, Ed. I, I I think that's you know, like I said, I haven't seen it, but um, just uh, from well, what I've heard about it and everything. The beauty I mean, of it I, is, I the beauty of it is, you don't have to understand it. You just follow it in and understand from me that question number one challenges the jurisdiction and venue and backs that up with case law, constitutional case law. The whole thing is constitutional from top to bottom. You're using Supreme Court case law, which says that they cannot proceed forward until the other party has answered the questions. Uh, somebody brought a claim against you. They asserted jurisdiction over you. Now you're telling them they have to prove it on the record before the case can move forward. It, it, it would stop the summary judgment for sure. Yeah. All, yeah it would, all, it, it, and that's what yeah. your hearing is on this week, right, is on the summary judgment. Yeah, that's what's on Tuesday. And, you know, I, what I filed in, I told the lady at the front, at, at the court administrator's office, I, I I, I've been in there quite often, and I've never seen her before. And I was like, "You might want the judge to look at this stuff before, you know, the actual hearing, because they never look at that shit." And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I doubt she did, but we'll see what happens. But yeah, I'd love to get that ad or Dave, whoever can send it to me. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get it to you. I'll get it to you. I have that stuff. The newer, those other two documents, though, Ed. If you get those to me, I'll. We'll send those over is, as well. Is the opposing? I'm just curious. Is the opposing side? Is it? A, is it a state bar attorney? It's yeah. So, yeah, it, <laughs> it's a, a state agency. bar attorney. The, the, the name of the law firm is Gerstel Law Firm, and Todd Gerstel owns the law firm, and he is also the organizer of the debt collection company or the debt buyer that uh, they are representing. So I brought up, uh, you know, conflict of interest also into the case. Sure, he's representing his corporation. He's representing yeah. his corporation. He created a corporation, an LLC, to buy debt, and then he has a law firm that is hired by the LLC uh, to – try and collect on the debt. 
Yeah, you can prove easily that he's both parties, and that is a no-no. And, and I, and when you're dealing with corporate law, you know, they—I mean, all attorneys are are officers of the court, and then they have a duty, uh, which I think goes to to the emoluments clause of the Constitution, of where they won't use that position for other profit or gain. You know, and you could always bring up Brady versus Maryland too, the Due Process yeah. Protection Act. Say, so, Your Honor, I'm not sure that he's turned everything over to me that uh, that would keep me from having to defend myself in this case. Have have you have you sent in a written order for him to uh, to furnish me with that information on the record? Yes or no? Yeah, that that's what you brought up tonight. That's why that that really clicked with me because. You know, I've I've basically uh, well, the the attorney has stated that I have harmed T and I Enterprises for a dollar amount, and now that's the contract amount. And you, we we all know they don't pay full dollar amount for the contract. Uh, you right. Know, they, so they here's another here's another problem with that statement that he made. Uh, Corporations are fictitious. They can't be harmed. Not by yeah. a living, breathing man. <laughs> you're, yep. you're, you got two different. You got two. You got two different jurisdictions there, public and private. And you're the private. You're in the private. So, did you sign something with this company that he's saying was harmed? Do you have a contract with them? Nope, not with them. Well. He, you know, he needs to bring the real party in interest. He needs to bring the true plaintiff. Yeah, and you know, I mean, honestly, Ed, I've I've already gotten rid of a couple of uh, other, you know, that this this thing has been bought and sold about three three or four times, and I've gotten yeah, well, rid of all the ones. They're stuck. The money issue is what you ought to pound, though. That, that it's like John said, you file this into the case and almost step back in Daryl to try to collect anything but gold and silver from you. Yeah. I mean, if it was me, if it was me, I would, I would immediately, if they find summary judgment against you, the first thing I would do is file a bill of particulars into the case tomorrow because this attorney is the one asserting jurisdiction, and uh, here's a case for you. Uh, I, I've mentioned it on the shows before, but I want you to read it tonight. It's McNutt, M-C-N-U-T-T. Hey, give me, give me one second. Let, let, okay. let me get to my desk here real quick. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. McNutt, M-C-N-U-T-T, okay. versus General Motors Acceptance Corporation. And uh, what... Uh, uh, I don't. I'll, I'll give you the case site as soon as I find my. I'm like John. I have to go to a different notebook, but let me uh, let me find it real quick, and I'll read it to the group so that everybody understands this concept because this is a lot of what we talk about every week when we, when it comes down to jurisdiction. And you know that to me that that brings up. I mean, the jurisdiction covers a, a lot of different things, but. You know, and I, I listen to a lot of different uh, calls and all that. And uh, we talked a lot about that last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
the and, court, you know, the court like, jurisdiction to hear it in the first place. Okay, I got it. I got my notes. Okay, it's uh, it's McNutt versus uh, General Motors Acceptance Corporation, two ninety eight U.S. one seventy eight, and it's a case from nineteen thirty six. Here's what it says, okay, and you can quote this tomorrow. Jurisdiction, once challenged, is to be proven, not by the court, but by the party attempting to assert jurisdiction. The burden of proof of jurisdiction lies with the asserter. The court is only to rule on the sufficiency of the proof tendered. Okay. Now, do you understand what I just said? What yep, the Supreme yep, Court just said? Once I do. It's it, basically he's put stating it the that they need the contract between the parties or they have nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the case you want to bring in there. Uh, but I, I, here's what I would do. Here's what I would do in this case. I would file the BOP tomorrow. I'd file the bill of particulars tomorrow into your case and then tell the judge uh, before the, he begins the proceeding that you've got some procedural issues that need to be addressed. And he'll say, what are they? And you'll say, well, I challenge jurisdiction on the record, Your Honor. And uh, McNutt versus General Motors Acceptance Corporation said, whoever's bringing the case needs to also prove jurisdiction on the record. Okay. Has that Sounds been like done you gave yet? me a remedy there. Yeah, has that been done yet? Yes or no? No. Yeah, well, th no, you say I, I, that to the judge. You, know. <laughs> you tell that to the judge, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I, have, I, I have, you know, brought up jurisdiction to the court as far as them being able to order me to pay anything, uh, which goes back to John's stuff, uh, or, you know, uh, Article 1, Section 10. Uh, but... I have not done it this way, like you're talking okay. about, Ed. Yeah. So what you're doing is you're challenging, uh, you're challenging subject matter jurisdiction. You're, in a, in a sense, you're challenging subject matter jurisdiction because you're saying, once challenged, it's got to be proven, but not by the court, by the person assert, asserting the jurisdiction. This lawyer on the other side is saying that he has jurisdiction over you. Well, prove it. Prove it on the record. And then we can go. To, and then we can go to summary judgment. But until you do that, we're you know this case is halted. And if they go past that, you can also remind the judge of Brady versus Maryland. Yeah. That that's what I what you brought up. <laughs> and this new one. Yeah. That that. Anyway, uh, guys, we are we are far beyond uh, <laughs> the hour here. Um, I'm going to get to wrapping this uh, podcast up. Is there any other questions that anybody absolutely wanted to ask that has been waiting? Nope. Um, Ed, I will, uh, if you can get that to me, and, and again, I'll get you the bill of particulars, Chad. I will... Uh, I have to charge my my computer's been sitting in my in my truck for the last week, so I'm sure it's not holding. You know, there's no charge on it. I will uh, bring that in tonight, charge it up, and I will get you the bill of particulars um, over yeah. to you tonight. Yeah, and if I can find if I can find those two if I 
if I can find those two uh, letters, the one to the judge and the one to the uh, the opposing counsel, then uh, I will definitely forward those over to you so you can send them to him. He should put those both in the record tomorrow as well. Yeah, no, I'd like, I, I'm looking forward to seeing those, and uh, I know Daniel was looking for them too, so I will, uh, if you do send that to me, I'll, I'll uh, download them off the, you know, off the email and then send them out separately. What are you doing? Hello, Dave, right, well, thank you all very much, yeah, no, I appreciate it, I, you know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm kind of playing guinea pig here, I, you know, I don't, I don't really care that much whether I win or lose money doesn't mean that much but it's like if it can help other people same thing you guys are doing you know that's that's what I want sure no absolutely some, we appreciate that I think I heard oh, somebody oh, else who was trying to ask a question is there anybody yeah, David, else? I was gonna yeah this is Frank I was gonna follow back up with you uh David because I found that uh statue where I read about the venue and I wanted to read that to you real quick sure sure all right, it says venue, an action or proceeding in the courts of this state for custody and support of a minor child may be maintained in the county where the child resides or is physically present or in a county where a parent resides, except as hereinafter provided. If an action for annulment for divorce, either absolute or from bed and board, or for alimony without divorce has been previously instituted in this state until there has been a final judgment in such case, any action or proceeding for custody and support of the minor children of the marriage shall be joined with such action or be by motion in the cause in such action. If an action or proceeding for the custody and support of a minor child has been instituted and an action for annulment or for divorce by the absolute or from bed and board or for alimony without divorce is subsequently instituted in the same or another county, the court having jurisdiction of the prior action or proceeding may, in its discretion, direct that the action or proceeding for custody and support of a minor child be consolidated with such subsequent action, and in the event consolidation is ordered, shall determine in which court such consolidation action or proceeding shall be heard. Right, and that's a county court, which would be your your superior court, not family court. Family court's not a court. Family court's an administrative tribunal, so... Yeah, that that answers yeah. your question right there. Well, that's what I took to them on Friday, <laughs> and they said that from what the 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 uh, clerk of court was saying, they're like, yeah, that last sentence, the that the that the, uh, the 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 court having jurisdiction of the prior action, you see, that was family court. So you got to stay back in family court, sir. Yeah, but what again, kind of you, uh, but they didn't have a they didn't have family uh, family court didn't have jurisdiction. They never proved it. But you can go back to your 2014 when they ordered the children to go to you and not to not to her for reasons uh, you know uh, that you know. And um, now they now they went against their own decision. Yep. 
What were you about to say, Ed? I was going to ask you what kind of court. Uh, what kind of court did your divorce happen in? Uh, we didn't have a divorce. We we had um we we had a uh, faith based uh, marriage uh, sixteen years ago. Yeah, we we only had custody. We didn't have a state. Um, we never had a state marriage license. Thankfully, I got you. And, and so the custody was in the family court. The custody, <laughs> correct. Correct. But he's been okay. fighting that jurisdiction ever since. So. Yeah. Well, they're they're corrupt. I mean, the Family they Court are. Act is uh, it's it's corrupt it, from the top to the bottom. The main thing they are. And That's why I don't want to be in there. One thing you want to bring up is uh, international treaty law. It's a Tenth Amendment violation. They had okay. no right to determine custody of your child because it was a Tenth Amendment violation and. Uh, uh, the any order that the family court gave was null and void. But I think in, in conjunction with a verified claim, I think you're going to have a great case, especially if you have to take it to appeal. Okay. All right. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for joining me again tonight. And uh, until next week, um, I don't know if Daniel's still on the line. or is it, When is the next Thursday call? Do you know when? Oh, you yes, are? Yes, <laughs> I'm still here. Yes. Next Thursday, there's a House of Prayer call. That's April the 1st, and it is going to be at 6.30 Central Time. And the phone number for call-in for that particular call is, I'll tell it to you right now, just give me 10 seconds, is 712. What's the topic, Daniel? The topic this uh, next coming up is going to be your. Um, it's going to be follow, going to be follow up of your matters that we talked about about house and lands. We never oh, got. Yeah, okay. We never got to deal with because of the time getting carried away. And right. I wanted to bring up this. Um, did you get a chance to read that article that Tisha was talking about? I would like uh, to. No, uh, she tried to highlight it for me because I can't receive uh, my emails. I know whenever they get the power up, my email box is going to be flooded, but uh, I will look for that because it sounded it sounded right to me from what she yeah. told me. It I, right. I may have some uh, I may have some equitable equitable remedy for you as well in your situation there, Ed, so that you can complete that process. Daniel okay. and I had been talking a little bit, and we were supposed to talk. I tried to reach out to you yesterday. I guess you were busy. But um, I know it's been a minute since we've talked about this, but, you know, we, we talked about uh, finalizing and perfecting your claim and, and equity on your property and getting those deeds uh, separated and, uh, you know, having your equitable position recognized. Okay. I also got – I want to say this, and this is like a precursor. I've been going through some calls uh, that I've had in my um, – my to-do list for quite some time. I went through it a second time. And you know how John so eloquently brought out and things we've already known about travel being uh, the driver's license, make, making uh, commercial merchandise, and you're acting in a commercial capacity when you're getting charged on these roads for driver's license issues. Well, I wanted to throw it out that I've been researching, looking back, and talking to the guys in our, our little group here on that we meet here in the, in the area known as Fayetteville. And... Um, we, we've come to the conclusion, and I'm going to throw my um, thoughts and my findings out on Thursday night as well, that uh, they're doing the very same thing with property taxes. 
they've deemed your property commercial, and that's what's giving them the uh, the, the taxable authority. And we'll talk about that some more as well and explore that subject. That phone number for next Thursday night is, and I know you're trying to close this out, Dave, it's 712-770-4160, and the access code for that call is 845-576. And that's this Thursday night coming up at 630 Central. Looking right. forward to it. Looking forward to that. Should be another good call. All right, guys. Well, thanks again for being here, and uh, until next Thursday, <laughs> we'll talk soon. Have a fantastic night, guys. Thank you. All right. Good thanks night. everybody. Have a good night. Good night. Yep, you too. Good night. Have a good night, Dave. Have a good night.